0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Also on Facebook, you can subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tune in. Head to NationalReview.com, click on the podcast tab and find all the fine NR shows, including this one. Listen, leave reviews via Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. You can also join us at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free as it is. There's an entry level for support and voting privileges. We had a a little poll this week on future episodes. Mid-level for early access and higher audio quality for our shows. And the upper level, best friend level for early access, the higher quality, monthly exclusive content, remastered episodes, playlists via Spotify, and more. We have some very neat idea about November and possibly December exclusive content, so get on board, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram, you find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram, and still with us, uh, sometimes there's lineup changes with these things, you know how it goes, you've been in bands, but Jeff is still here, my tag team partner Jeff Blair, standing by. Jeff, how are you?
1: Well, I'm actually a little tired, I haven't, I haven't. I haven't really slept in 72 hours, Scott, but I'll I'll tell you this. I've been taking taking a really good look at the podcast, and I've been taking it apart and putting it back together and piecing it together, and I I figured it out. I figured it out. We can take this episode, the last part of it's really weak, so we can slice it up, but then we can take the middle part, move it to the ending, and then we can double it up for effect, and it'll be our best episode ever.
0: I do think your 18th uh, version of the last podcast was the finest version um, of of the the 32 you put together.
1: Trial and error, man. Trial and error.
0: At Esoteric CD is where to find Jeff on Twitter. And back for a return engagement for part two, because I don't know what we do with a different guest, uh, is uh, Charles C. W. Cook, senior writer for National Review Online. You can also find him at uh, charlescwcook.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter out on Saturdays. Sometimes it even gets proofread before it's sent out. Charlie, thanks for joining us once again.
2: Thanks for having me again.
0: (laughs) And we dig into part two of our Fleetwood Mac episodes. If you missed part one, well, you probably should go back and hear it first. We take you from the beginning to the band all the way through 1974 or so. And uh, lo and behold, a surprise to no one, I suppose, the band encounters another lineup change. This one, fairly important. And I think Jeff will take us into how that occurred and where we go from here.
1: Well, if you guys listened to the last episode of, uh, political beats, and if not, why not? I must ask. Then you know that one of the big disappointments of Fleetwood Mac's career in the early seventies was how mystery to me landed. It was a magnificent album. It was going to be a great achievement. They were going to tour it. And then all of a sudden they found out the lead guitarist is sleeping with the drummer's wife. The tour collapses their manager sends out a fake version of the band on tour, <laughs> claims he has the rights to the name. They have to spend the next year in court fighting for the legal t- title to use the name Fleetwood Mac and go and play under their name again. Um, all their momentum is halted. And so Bob Welch, who had been contributing in a major way to Fleetwood Mac at that point, had basically decided, I, you know what, if the next one doesn't break big, then I'm done. And Heroes Are Hard to Find didn't break big. But one thing he had convinced the band to do in the meantime is relocate. They were an English band up until Mystery to Me. After that album, Bob Welch said, you know what? Our record label isn't really paying any attention to us because we're over here in England and they're a Los Angeles record label. So we need to move to L.A. And be seen by these people playing in places by these people hobnobbing with these people if we want ourselves to get anywhere with warner brothers and reprise and so he moves them to los angeles and then he turns in his papers and he quits he says you know what i just can't deal with this anymore uh mick fleetwood is now faced with the unenviable position of having to replace his entire front line once again you've got no lead guitarist you've got you know only one lead singer and songwriter and Christine McVie. so what does he do he's looking at studios actually he's demoing studios like where do we want to record when somebody running the studio guy happens to be by the name of richard daschen uh happens to throw on an album that he had i, I don't remember what his connection to it was but mcfleet would heard it playing on the pa system in the studio and said who are these guys these guys are amazing i love this music and uh, Dash's response was, oh yeah, this is a group called Buckingham Dex. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, two true Californians born and bred. I think Lindsey Buckingham is from Northern California. He's from like, you know, like Palo Alto or something like that. And Stevie is from
0: Southern California. But uh, Went to the same high cal- school, though, right?
1: Oh, no, no. Yeah,
0: you're right. You're right. Yeah. Didn't
1: they go to the same high
0: school? Yeah, that's where they met the first time.
1: And so, but anyways, they literally, he heard the album. Mick Fleawood heard the album and said, you know what? Guess what? We need a new lead guitarist and singer and songwriter Lindsey Buckingham, come join the band without ever having heard a note of your album. And this, this by the way, is a group that had gone nowhere. This album came out in 1973, completely forgotten. In 19, like early 1975, late 74, late 74 is when he heard it. These guys were nobody. But Buckingham still made demands. He says, look, like, you know what? You can't hire me without taking my girlfriend. Stevie Nicks is coming with me. And McFlute was like, OK. And then suddenly a new band was born. And it was a beautiful mixture i don't want to talk too much about it because i've been doing my whole irving the explainer act here but the balance of this band signaled something very new and very different for fleetwood mac you now had three songwriters three distinctive voices three distinctive approaches to songwriting three distinctive views on fleetwood mac uh you had a different band the beginning of a new era you had what would become the self-titled Fleetwood Mac album, the White Album. Uh, what do you guys think of this new era of this band? And there's a reason we have this devoted to a part two episode. I think we all understand how important this is. Well,
2: this is a great Fleetwood Mac. I like the other Fleetwood Mac. One of the reasons you had me on the podcast, Jeff, was that I like the other Fleetwood Mac. You didn't want just to skip forward to this bit. But this is the great Fleetwood Mac. This is a Fleetwood Mac people know. And in some senses, that's a shame because there is a lot of good work before this. But there's also a reason for that. And that is that the work this lineup puts out is the best that any lineup puts out of Fleetwood Mac. And one reason for that is that Stevie Nicks has a wonderful voice and Lindsey Buckingham's a genius. songwriter has a fantastic voice but he is a magician in the studio
1: it's a fairly lucky combo just to find that just the two of
2: them out there floating around in california and i think it's worth reflecting on people who work like lindsey buckingham because they often get a bad rap and they certainly annoy their bandmates and producers but in most circumstances they're right I'm not comparing them directly. They're very different. But if you read enough about the Beatles, you will discover that Paul McCartney was overbearing. He would tell people what to play. He would tell people that he thought they were wrong. He dominated the recording sessions, especially toward the end. And Buckingham does that immediately. He's no wallflower. He doesn't come into this band and sit back. Mm -hmm. In fact, he is so on this first record on fleetwood mac 1975 he is so dominant that he's told off by by john McVie, who says this is my band stop telling us what to do but i'm afraid that buckingham was right and that makes a, a big difference because really for a, a, a period from about 1975 when they join, to the late 80s, Fleetwood Mac produced records that whether you like them or not are not loose, they're not inchoate, and there's not much filler on them. So as much as it mattered having more songwriters, a brilliant guitarist, and another female voice, one of the most famous female voices of all time, it's worth dwelling on Lindsay Buckingham for a moment to say that that as much as anything else is what changes.
1: I have so many thoughts about Lindsay Buckingham, but Scott, you go
0: first. Yeah, and just very quickly, um, you, you might wonder why John McVie was bristling, because he wasn't a songwriter, right? He didn't write uh, songs for Fleetwood Mac, and he, he didn't sing. And um, and there were other leaders of this band in the past, as we talked about on part one. So, so what about Buckingham? Well, Buckingham is actually taking an interest in the totality of the band, uh, the instruments, all of them, the production, all of it. And so he, he really is, at at times, and uh, I mentioned this specifically on the next album, at, at telling John McVie what to play, what to yeah, play you, on his bass. I was
1: about to say, you want to know a great way to piss off a band member <laughs> is to tell them what notes to
2: play. Yes. But I'm defensive of this. I, I think that often, <laughs> often, yeah, you and Paul McCartney, all right, yeah i i well not just paul
1: McCartney. you want to do pet sounds okay well this is okay you're gonna steal my thunder but yes he's very brian wilson like is what i was going to say
2: if you know you know and very few people know but lindsey buckingham knew he could hear it he could see it he could conceptualize it and once you've heard it in your brain you can't let it go and all you have to do in order to justify Buckingham's approach here is he's listened to the work.
1: Look, you know, here's the thing, and what's fascinating for me, I think of him somewhat in a more Brian Wilson-esque perspective, Lindsey Buckingham, as a, both as a producer and as a songwriter, in that he has the same weaknesses that Brian Wilson has as a songwriter, in that his songs are almost always meaningless. Unless he's, he, what focuses him, the only thing that ever focuses Lindsey Buckingham as a songwriter is when he's really pissed off at
0: Stevie Nicks. <laughs>
1: Boy, but he can get it up. He can get a good lyric together when he's talking about how angry he is at Stevie for walking out on him and breaking his heart. He writes a song like called Go Insane in nineteen eighty-four. And he says, like, yeah, that's is actually about Stevie. He's like, I've been holding on to that for like seven years. He's still angry about it. Um but he otherwise is, is kind of like a, not a very serious lyricist, all right? He's about sounds. He's about music harmonies. He's about layering tricks. He's about using the studio as an instrument in and of itself. Right? Stevie Nicks is actually the one who brings the most lyrical import to Fleetwood Mac. Everybody likes to make fun of her. And I know Scott, uh, you know, in particular sometimes has fun with with her voice but i happen to to really appreciate what she brings to this band and what's most interesting about that first fleetwood mac album this first one in 1975 was the first one to go to number one is how it's also still a little inchoate here because this is a band that came together quickly but it's fascinating when you hear them here and they're not quite together yet in my opinion this is a number one hit album so i'm in a minority when i say that i've never been hugely impressed with this record. So everybody else want to tell me why I'm the one guy in the corner who says like, yeah, I didn't like the Fleetwood Mac album.
0: Well, you're not saying you don't like it, right? I mean, I I, I think it's yeah, I, I
1: like it. I like it, but I don't love it. Right, I never loved it. As I said in our notes, I said there's just the, there's a very fine line between like, you know, delicately crafted. Yes calibrated arrangements and just well, soft rock loop like crystal sometimes there's some soft rock loop
0: they would probably do crystal differently if they did it 3 years after uh this album right i mean that that's a song that's probably a little too soft uh and buckingham might do something different with down the road production wise and there are a few moments like that here in fact you know you know Buckingham's contributions uh from the writing perspective I think there's only three if I'm not mistaken and so there is a lot of space here for Stevie Dicks and Christine McVie to uh to have their songs highlighted uh Buckingham does what he can to keep the McVie stuff from being a little too mellow and in most places I think it's successful one of the other reasons that that Buckingham probably felt like he could uh he could boss some people around, uh, A, because, as Charlie mentioned, he was really good. Uh, but also, a number of these songs were meant for and written for the Buckingham Nicks second LP. So these are songs that essentially were coming to the band fully formed. Uh, Rhiannon, I'm So Afraid, Monday Morning. All those things were done, essentially, writing-wise, before they were brought to the full band. Um, Monday Morning... <laughs> These next two albums, I, I just love the way they start. And they're both Buckingham, these these nervy, upbeat Buckingham songs. Uh, Monday morning, Jeff prefers, not to steal your thunder, but the arrangement on the live album. And I listened to the live album because Jeff makes me do these things. And I, dis- <laughs> I disagree. I, I, I think it's right here. I, I think it's right on this album. I think it's a fantastic arrangement uh, and, and just a wonderful sense of momentum to start the album
3: Monday morning you show the fight.
0: You know, Christine's Say You Love Me is, I think, her best thing on the album. And those just bouncy, joyous uh, piano chords are undeniable. Um, uh, John McVie plays a wonderful bass line that surges throughout the song. And then you've got a 12-string being played by by Buckingham on, on that album. That is just a really and 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 the banjo too, just a wonderful song. "Say You Love Me" is just meant to be charting. It's one of the top, uh, one of the three top twenty songs that were featured on this album. Um, "Rhiannon" is one in which I actually think the band is working together really well. Um, They will they will do better, Uh, but that is an example of Mick Fleetwood's ability to own a song. He transforms what could have been kind of a sleepy number with this just metronomic drum playing, and then you keep
1: waiting for it to like explode into like this big you know you know a a four four dash. Yep, but it never does. It never goes straight. It's always just more of this, almost like a like a like a stumbling hop. The way the rhythm works on that, and you're right, it's fascinated me since the day I heard it as well.
0: And the only sort of relief from that are those are those guitar lines from Buckingham where he sort of picks up the the mystical arrangement that Nix wants in his solos they really were fantastic uh in the studio they really did work so well together and that's also one of those first times you hear those layered vocals with with Nix and Christine McVie and Lindsey Buckingham singing together and it is a magical magical thing uh Rhiannon in um, the Monday morning, probably my two favorite songs on the album. Both of them brought essentially fully formed from Buckingham Knicks as they enter the studio for, to, to record this album.
2: this but i see it as proto rumors
1: yeah i kind of think I, i see the same yes
2: and and because of that i see it as being fused to rumors and so perhaps i overrate it although i certainly don't and couldn't overrate some of its tracks which are magnificent the first thing that is obvious about this this album is that the band sounds different because stevie nicks is in it and the reason for that is that stevie nicks just has one of the most distinctive voices in the history of music there are some bands where you can't really tell if they change the vocalist and actually fleetwood mac in the early 70s was often like that Hmm. Mm -hmm. but with stevie nicks in the band no one else sounds like that now i know some people hate her voice and i don't know what's wrong with them
1: I, I do believe the creators of South Park were the meanest. <laughs>
2: I, I, if I recall, one of their earlier episodes, they portrayed her as a goat,
1: as just an actual mountain goat. They just went,
2: and uh, and people just kept on talking to it as if it was Stevie Nicks. But even if you hate Stevie <laughs> Nicks that much, you're still aware of Stevie Nicks. You And are. so this becomes a different band. You would be able to recognize this band in uh, a record store paying over the PA in a way that you wouldn't always with, with Fleetwood Mac, even when they were good, at least after Peter Green left the band. Um, in terms of the, the songs on it, I mean, to me, it alternates between being very good and then magisterial. Landslide is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. The arrangement is perfect, and the vocals are too.
4: To my love. I climbed a mountain and I turned around. And I saw my reflection in snow covered hills till the landslide brought me down. Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I say, changing ocean tides. Can I handle seasons of my life?
2: say you love me. It's so joyous. I'm so glad you used that word, Scott. Every time the guitar solo starts and it runs mm. up from the bottom of the guitar yes. and Gets slightly louder if you listen really carefully it's actually a little bit distorted um in in, not in a deliberate way and that works too every time that happens i smile it just feels to me that it captures something about life in that in that two whatever it is two to ten second moment especially when it hits at the top And he could have carried it on, but he didn't. They stop it. They leave you wanting more. songs i ever heard uh it, it's it's interestingly dry as a recording for for buckingham as well mm-hmm. it's very tight so yeah i don't think this is rumors good but you know it, it is it's inextricably linked to rumors and it introduced this new band and compared to almost everything else has been recorded it's it's up there
1: when i look at the fleetwood mac album
2: i, I look at it more in a global
1: sense i look at it as a band that's finally beginning to sort itself into balance <clears throat> but it isn't quite in the fullest bloom you know of it, of its flower uh kind of the way charlie points out because we're still it's proto rumors it's not what rumors is but the other thing is you see the songwriters at different places in their songwriting journey so like christine mcvee suddenly becomes a much better pop songwriter even though she'd already been an excellent one from you know throughout the earlier part of mac's career did she suddenly become a much better songwriter suddenly with the 1975 album well yes that is that is very possible okay because songwriters learn their craft all right and for somebody who you can tell is a craftsman it's definitely McVie. but i also think what also happened is that lindsey buckingham came into the picture uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, and so Lindsay Buckingham, and what you're going to notice, and we'll be talking a lot about this over the next few albums, his fingerprints are all over other people's songs as well as his own. The irony is one of the reasons I actually don't like this album as much as the others is because I don't think Buckingham's own songs are as well done. Uh, as they would be in later on and actually are as well done as they come across as live. I'm So Afraid is one of their most powerful live songs. Just you know, no, it's, it's a lot weaker than that in the studio version. Monday Morning, same story there. I disagree with Scott. But then you look at what he does for everyone else. You look at how Over My Head, if you listen to Over My Head, the single version, which is the one that was the actual hit, uh, you listen to it, it doesn't have the organ on top of it. and What it does end up sounding like it's this weird sort of like mutant bluegrass (laughs) or like you know honky tonk it's driven by guitars there are no keyboards and you think of over my head you think of it as a quintessential christy mcvee keyboard driven song because the, the version that you know that's on the album has that calypso organ that smooth organ but then you realize what it's, it's like you strip away the hood and underneath it's like wait a second this is folk music this is rocked up folk music and that is the Lindsay Buckingham influence he takes these songs and he turns them into these weird bluegrassing finger picking skeletons with his guitar work You're me. He also does the same thing on say you love me say you love me has honky-tonk sounds in it because of lindsey buckingham taking what is otherwise a straightforward piano ballad and just sort of like deconstructing it and then reassembling it as a much more effective guitar-based pop song even though the piano was there he gives so much of himself to everyone else's songs landslide you know is is you know obviously stevie's triumph through and through But with that guitar solo from Lindsey Buckingham, which has just become famous, you know, that is the best possible contribution he can make to someone else. And I think the other interesting thing about this album that has to be observed is that one person came into it fully formed, and that's Stevie Nicks. Her two songs on this record are absolutely perfect. Charlie already discussed Landslide, and I have to echo it. It is a timeless song. I don't even think it's the best Stevie Nicks song that she contributed to Fleetwood Mac. I think that's going to come later on in, in their career. But what this one is is an actual standard. It's gone into the songbook. It's not just a song that you like you think that's a great production. It's a song that people will sing. They will play. People perform this song. This song has become a, an American popular music standard. And that was what that's what, you know, Stevie Nicks contributed to, to Fleetwood Mac first time out of the gate on the first album everyone else was still improving as a songwriter or learning their craft in different ways maybe whether it was in the studio or as songwriters stevie Nicks came in as her own woman right from the start that's what makes this album actually as good as it is and that's what it's going to turn rumors into just the absolute tornado that it becomes <laughs> To set up rumors for us. Scott, you want to explain every divorce?
0: Oh goodness gracious! So by what by this point, when they're recording rumors, uh, no one's on good terms. Uh, the, uh, John and Christine McVie had divorced. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks are what on and off at best, maybe worse than that. Certainly, both are having dalliances with others, which will come out in lyrics throughout this album and in the future. Uh, Mick Fleetwood's wife had an affair. Uh, but then I had an
1: affair, remember with the guitarist right but then he took he took
0: her back uh, so I think technically they're together at this point but don't quote me on that um, and, and then... this is
1: all before the Fleetwood Mac album breaks big you know what I'm interrupting you that's okay one of the, there's one other thing I need to point out everyone thinks of this album the, the one we just discussed as being like well you know that's the first big number one Fleetwood Mac album that's the first one that everyone knows the story at the time was different when it came out it came out to indifference It didn't do that well. Mm -hmm. They toured it all up and down the United States. They dragged its carcass anywhere that would take them. They would play small clubs. They would play arenas. They would play anything. They worked their asses off and broke their backs to make the album big, which is when it finally started spitting up the hit singles, which didn't happen immediately. And then I think it was only near the end of 75, maybe the beginning of 76, that it finally got to number one so they had worked so hard and that's the point at which everybody decides that they hate everybody <laughs> else in the dance.
0: And uh, we throw in the fact that drugs are just rampant. And, I mean, people might look at rumors and think that that's that's the high point for drug use in Fleetwood Mac. And, oh, no, my friends. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. no, no. It would be far worse. But it it is mountainous, uh, quite literally and figuratively at this point. Before
1: this show is over, we will learn that there are different ways to take cocaine than the ones that you're used to. That's all I'm going to say. We'll get there when we get there.
0: But you have, uh, uh, swirling around all of this, uh, the release of Rumors in 1977. And I, um, well, I was going back and forth about how hard I want to sell this. And I'm just going to do the whole thing, which is, as much as you can say this about an album, considering the number of choices and the number of factors that weigh into it, I think Rumors is the greatest rock album ever ever made ever recorded and to, to try to explain why I mean yes we'll talk about the music but overarchingly rumors is everything rumors is everything rumors is American and it's British it's R&B and it's folk it's piano and guitar it's love and loss it's male and female it's uh this insanely good rhythm section probably playing as well as they have ever played in their lives uh it, it's hot. And it's cold. Uh, there are times you want to sing along and choruses like Don't Stop. There are songs you want to stop for contemplation, songbird, uh, elsewhere. Um, there's finger pointing, but there's also, intra- you know, it's in- introspective. Um, it's private, very private, and yet universal. And the fact that we know so much about these relationships with each other, the fact that we know it was all playing out essentially real time, it, it, literally writing lyrics about each other, singing them, or, as in the second-hand news demo, masking them so Stevie Nicks wouldn't get upset at Lindsey Buckingham while he was trying to present a new song. It all comes together to create this, this canvas, which I think is unmatched. I, I really do think is unmatched. And throw in the fact that this is, oh my goodness, pristinely recorded. This album sounds so good, so good. And you throw all of that together with the quality of the songs, uh, all of these uh, band members essentially operating at at peak performance through this recording. And then the emotional turmoil uh, between the members and how it manifests itself in, in lyrics and across songs. It is absolutely incredible. And uh, maybe I'll hand it off if someone else wants to say something before we get to the music, because again, I will just make the stand that this is, in my mind, the greatest rock album ever recorded.
1: So it's an 8 out of 10 for you?
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a pitchfork 10 out of 10.
1: It is. It is. I will say this. I consider it to be the greatest recorded album of all time. Maybe the best recorded yeah. And that's a little different, maybe a slight difference between that and saying it's the best produced album, because there are different kinds of things. When you, you think of production, you do sometimes think of like, you know, you know, Pepper Pomp and stuff like that. This is one of the most perfectly recorded records I've ever heard. But of course, that is to damn it with clinical faint praise. This is also one of the most perfect rock and pop albums that has ever been. Uh, there is precisely one flaw on it, which is that Oh Daddy is like not a very interesting song, in oh, my I'm opinion. I'm so
2: glad you said that's the one track i skip
1: <laughs> yes the one track i skip but i also i do like i don't want to know people sit to ask people often skip that i like that that's, that's a nice little yeah. stevie Lindsay duet i think it works really well Uh, but other than that, what is there to criticize on this album? You know what? The, for the longest time, I hated Don't Stop because it was used as Bill Clinton's campaign theme music during the uh, early 90s and was well, one of my earlier political memories. I recall thinking to myself, gosh, I hate that cheesy song. Uh, that was a prejudice I've long since gotten past. There is nothing I can criticize about this album. So I, I think I want Charles to go first, just because somebody's got to spread a little bit of poop all over the shining nugget of gold that is "Rumors."
2: Oh, I won't be me, unless we.
1: Oh, I thought you meditate. said you you warned us earlier you might disappoint us on this album. I'm, Never mind.
2: No, not on this album. On, on others.
1: Oh, oh well, then fine. Why don't you give us your short version on "Rumors," and then we can try so desperately try to explain why Lindsey
2: Buckingham is God on this record. It, it's monumental. This is the band at its peak. This is the thing that happens once to every band. Where you look at a record and say, how did, how did all those songs end up on the same album? From the beginning to the end, except for Odaddy. Daddy. It's perfect. It starts with that faded up, jaunty tight guitar. Tight's actually a good word to describe this album. There are a few moments where it sprawls, but it sprawls in this mystical Stevie Nicks weirdness sort of way. <laughs> yeah, um, every
1: time Lindsay is on on focus, it is a very uptight album, in fact.
2: Yeah, but... but there's it, a it's, lot of neurosis in his songs. That, there's not much wasted. There's not much that is loose. Yes. Again, th- they manage, and this is a trick, this is a bit like people who make difficult things look easy they manage to maintain that 1970s drug-fueled almost indian mystical thing that stevie nicks brings to the band sometimes without making the music actually drag mm. and that's hard to do so it's a tight um and it starts it starts with that that guitar that instantly shows you where it's going. And it's relentless from from that moment on. To your point, by the way, about how hard it is to make Indian-sounding music,
1: that mystical stuff that Stevie was into, not drag, Dreams was actually a real point of contention for Buckingham, not even at the time, but in retrospect. He talked about how he had emotionally exhausted himself on Rumors, and part of it, as I'll discuss, is how he was everywhere on everyone else's songs so nix came in and played that song for the band on i think an acoustic guitar and it sounds as you might imagine it's got like two notes back and forth <laughs> basically it sounds really bit boring and drab but she was like please work with me on this there's something in here i know it is and then buckingham just set to work basically orchestrating every guitar line every swell of Christie's organ had to be placed in the right place i mean the work he put into that he said he felt so exhausted because you have to understand i'm doing this and on the other side she just dumped me a month ago <laughs> it's so like i'm absolutely enraged with her and completely compartmentalizing like you know all of this anger and sadness that i have and then just being a professional when it comes to her songs
2: If you listen to interviews with Buckingham, he has an interesting way of putting this, which sounds as if it should be pejorative, but I don't think he means it like this. And that is that he writes fully formed, and Stevie Nicks writes what he calls inside out. So she starts in the middle, and then one has to assemble the rest. And and it's a politer way of saying she had two chords and a couple of vocals, <laughs> that it sounded great, but that there wasn't much to it, and that he did the rest. Whereas when he's writing, I mean, if you take go your own way, for example, which is extremely complicated if you actually listen to the guitar lines, he wrote that he wrote that whole. And He was probably baffled by people who couldn't do that, which, again, takes us back to... our. our. But anyhow, I mean, it's almost tempting just to go through this track by track, so maybe maybe we should. Um, One of the nice things about this record is that although there are famous, uh, iconic tracks peppered throughout, it never feels pretentious.
1: And there's and, never one. There's never one song on this. I guess Dreams has sort of got like a certain hipster cachet these days. Yeah. But I would say, at least coming in my day, there's never one track on this record that dominates it, it's you true. know, in, in a way that like, you know, conquers all the rest of
0: it. And I, and I mentioned in, in the email before the show, at, at one point or another, essentially every song on this album has been my favorite song on this album for various reasons. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's not the, the one standout. They're all superb.
2: But there are also songs on here that are magnificent, but that are throwaway sounding. Secondhand news, never going back, and I don't want to know. I don't think secondhand news sounds like a throwaway at all. I don't think it sounds like a throwaway song, but I think it sounds casual. Mm -hmm. I I think it sounds uh, almost as if he wrote it on the back of an envelope and... It's so funny because I, I hear the complexities and okay one of the great things about the outtakes that have been released on rumors
1: is you hear early like stripped down versions of this, and you hear him working out that actually incredibly complicated drum shuffle beat with Mick Fleetwood, and he's just playing an acoustic guitar, and you realize that first of all half this genius belongs to Fleetwood, mm-hmm. he just who who who's not like formally trained. He just like you like a dyslexic who speaks drum yeah <laughs> he just knows how to come up like ringo starwood he knows how to come up with the right beat and the right approach especially for somebody who wants to get as aggressive as, as lindsey buckingham does Tale of that song is in the chorus, you know, where he does the, the scatting, you know, he, You hear this sort of assault of pitter patters in your earphones. You're like, what is this? What is this rhythmic thing? And he goes like, you hear like, a, and what it is? It's Lindsey Buckingham, close mic, his <laughs> fingers close mic, hunched over a leather naga hide couch in the studio, finger tapping it like it's bongos. That's that's Nagaite chair percussion yeah. is what you hear on secondhand news. That level of attention to detail is anything but throwaway to me.
0: Three quick things on, on on the song. One is the the opening couplet, which sets up the entire album. Right, I know there's nothing to say. Someone has taken my place, yeah. Uh, and that's 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 rumors. That's that's all of it. Uh, I love the delayed gratification of the chorus coming at the, or you know, the the main chorus of the song. The second hand news chorus coming at the very end of the song. We mentioned on the Elton John episode that was a trick that Elton John would do often too. His songs like. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, a number of his songs would, would the chorus would be would be delayed, delayed, delayed until there's a big payoff. And that that very end of Secondhand News, uh, when he when he's done singing, you know, I'm just Secondhand News, and he takes him up, up to the the highest point of his, of his register. I love that his guitar rises to meet him right there. He's done singing. I'm just Secondhand News. I'm just Secondhand News. And what what is there to meet him there is his guitar at that same. 10 out of 10, that same level to carry it through the end of the song. It's what's like two minutes and 12 seconds, but every detail of this song is perfect.
3: I'm just-
1: It is one of the greatest opening tracks of all time. You know, to get back to what Charlie said about iconic openers, I, I, it, it's uh, it's I think to this day it's still my favorite single song it, on the it, entire
2: album. It might be worth as well just reflecting on Buckingham's guitar playing because whether you're looking at the what I see as more casual songs or the big cinematic moments, don't stop, go your own way, the chain. His guitar playing always sounds to me like a wasp sting. I've never heard anyone else yes. quite get this tone. It's not blues. It, it's not that BB King style of of wasp sting. It's a it's a wasp sting filtered through a Fender Champion in 1977.
1: Well, the interesting thing about Buckingham to be that we haven't mentioned yet is that, of course, he came up through folk and through bluegrass, and he was strictly a finger picker, which is uh if you play electric guitars something of rarity to say the least you know and you know the stories go that, like after shows he'd frequently have bandaged up fingers because he'd have bloody fingers even with all the calluses he'd accumulated at that point because if you play an electric guitar the way he plays it with just your bare fingers and not a, a pick or a plectrum you're asking for trouble uh but he comes from that background which means that both he doesn't play like normal sort of like blues league guitarists do. You know, there's no BB King to him as as Charlie points out. But also he has a colorist's mindset. Which is what makes these Fleetwood Mac songs from this era it's just such a joy to get lost in. Like on secondhand news, you know, you know, in that chorus when it goes the da 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 You know, there's these little like dinking-dings in the background overdub. He's mm-hmm. like overdubs like little acoustic guitar yes. filigre.
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: Like the ding-ding-ding in one ear, and then in the other ear, like that. He 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 controls the sound palette. He controls all of these little like additions, touches. He has such a beautiful a painterly sense of restraint too it's never there's never one ornamentation too many i never feel like oh this is too busy these are some of the busiest tracks you have ever heard in your life on rumors some of the most densely produced things but when you hear them you think i'm hearing five people which is why they were able to play this music live you don't realize just how many small, little touches have been thrown into all of these songs. Even the ones, even never going back again. You know, which is you know just Lindsey Buckingham on an acoustic guitar, but it's not. There's all these, it's like, there was, there's two acoustic guitars simultaneously overdubbed, and then there's all the vocals, the backing vocals, those beautiful, perfect oohs and ahs that float in and out of it. Nothing is as simple as it seems on this record. You don't
3: know what it means to win.
2: So nothing is as easy as it seems. Uh, The the guitar on most of the album is a a Stratocaster, but the amplifiers that he was using weren't giving him the sound he wanted, and so they were cranking them up (laughs) so loud that almost every day they would burn out, and then they would send them out to the repair shop overnight so that they would have it again the next day to record with. And after five days, you know, the engineers are saying, can you stop doing this? Nope, absolutely not. <laughs> have to have that sound. Um, but he's not showing off. It, it's not. He's not doing that because he wants to make the guitar the only thing on the record. He's not doing it um, to put himself at the center of attention. A lot of the guitar playing is actually quite subtle on the record. There, I don't think there's a single guitar solo on this album unless you count, like, that play out at the end of
1: secondhand news. I'm like... I'm just thinking it in my head. I don't hear with a guitar solo. Oh, go your own way. has a guitar solo. And that's about it.
2: Yeah. The railing used... at the end of the chain, perhaps. Yes. That's, right. yeah, that's, but, the but that's the sort of perfect example of what Buckingham does because he uses his guitar as an ensemble instrument, but it sounds like a lead instrument. Right. It does. It it It, uh, it sounds like
1: he spoke in interviews about how his original role in the band was to just be a support guitarist a rhythm guitar, sort of like what Bob Welch was I play the occasional lead line, but that's not what I'm here for. That's not what this band does. And of course his role in this band is starting to change and it starts to change just because he sees the opportunities for it in the world of creating these little items of pop perfection. And I don't know about you guys. Uh, I, I love "Go Your Own Way." I've even come to love "Don't Stop," but uh, there is one song on this record that I consider to be the epitome of pop perfection. I consider it to be—is it Christy McVie's greatest ever song? Is it Fleetwood Mac's greatest ever song? It is very close, if not number one, for both of these. I consider it one of the greatest pop songs ever written. I'm talking about "Oh, Daddy." I think that no, I'm talking about "You Make." <laughs> I'm talking about "You Make Loving Fun." Obviously, Scott. You have tipped quite well in advance how much you love this song. I suspect you love it every bit as much as I do. Come on, explain why it's one of the greatest pop songs ever.
0: So I have spent multiple occasions in which I have uh, have put on a a pair of headphones and I've listened to You Make Love and Fun um, probably 10 times in a row in an effort to identify each way and each decision that makes it so good and i've not really i think reached my fill of finding reasons uh y- you make love and fun is from from start to finish and i mean the start the first three seconds the way those hi-hats are recorded tss, 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 and then bump into the cl- uh, the, uh, the clavinet
1: and the depth of that that bit, that time is boom. yes it's such a rich sound
0: and the there's a demo of this uh which is available and uh and and, uh, you can hear what lindsey buckingham did to the song from the original recording and i was listening to it again today that the, the demo version and uh the best comparison i can make is that without his magic um this song may have been way too close to like michael mcdonald era doobie brothers like fake soul funk sort of sound but what he does after he gets a hold of it and begins to overdub and begins to find where these things are supposed to go is just absolutely magical from the from the placement of the 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 solo so there's a solo here The, the early guitar solo placement only about what 90 seconds into the song um Mick Fleetwood's drums are incredible not just the locked in portions of the verses right where he and John McVie are totally totally in sync until it resolves in the chorus and you have these wonderful drum dum dum thum thump, these Tom fills in the it's
1: it's it sounds like a drunk falling down the stairs I love it
0: and, uh, and it's also that setup where there's such tension on those verses until the release of the chorus, and it opens up, and there's almost like this heavenly choir, which is you know McVie and uh, and probably Nick's also helping out in sort of the the, the, the background vocals. Um, the the delayed again the delayed gratification. You don't get the the big you make love and fun until the very very end, and of course it's all I want to do. It's just magical, um, you know lyrically too. It's it's phenomenal. This is this is Christine and her uh not a fair I guess because they weren't married, but her uh sleeping with the band's lighting director and I guess she told John it was about a dog and I don't think he probably <laughs> I, would have I, I believed think that. John
1: is John not being stupid probably. Probably figured honest. it out. It was not about a dog.
0: But they you know lyrically they oh, man lyrically this album is so good. Uh, uh, just to break very quickly go back to Don't Stop and Don't Stop is thought of this very big optimistic uh, you know, tomorrow is going to be great sort of song was Clinton's thing. But even inside the lyrics for Don't Stop, you have the, this tinge of darkness, right? Uh, uh, think about the times that, that to come, not about the things that you've done uh, or later on. Uh, I know you don't believe that it's true. I never meant any harm to you. There's still this darkness creeping around even the bright spots on rumors. And on You Make Love and Fun, I love, I love, don't break the spell. It would be different and you know it will, Right. What, whatever we have here, man, we've been around the block so many times. <sighs> don't don't change. Don't do anything different because it's going to wreck it. It's, it's, it's going to be wrecked eventually anyway. We, we know it. Just just don't break the spell until you absolutely have to. I, I love that part. And, of course, that, that dig. I don't have to tell you that you're the only one. Sorry. I, oh, man, man. Um, and that just musically it, again it's recorded it's pristinely recorded it sounds amazing you will listen to this 20 consecutive times and always find something else that is better and different than the time you listened before it is my uh it's my favorite christine McBee song from the entire flip pack catalog
1: I will just also point out that I think Lindsey Buckingham's guitar on "You Make Life Fun" may be my single favorite guitar contribution of his entire career with Fleetwood Mac, other than what he does on "Gypsy" later on. Uh, the way he plays on the choruses is, is just like an uncoiling, shimmering, you know, beam of
0: gold. But, but only what he has to do—it is his right, genius. It's a single it note; it, it, it's, oh. it's
1: so melodic and it's perfect. Yes, and, and, and it is such a generous line to It's perfect for the song and what it has to, do, and it leads. Even on the original version, you find out it wasn't like overdubbed after the fact. No, it leads seamlessly into the guitar solo, all as one line. And it's just all so well planned out. Like, there's not a note of that that is out of place. That was like mapped from start to finish. And it is just a perfect moment on a perfect song. But again, sure. this,
2: this is another example of how this only ever happens once because everyone's firing on all cylinders. We talked about Nixon right. Buckingham. Look at their songs on this record. But then look at McVee's. This is her best song. Songbird is a beautiful ballad that was actually recorded separately in a big concert hall, I believe, in Los Angeles. Just her.
1: Yeah, it was recorded, I think, at Royce Hall. Right. And and, and it's just her at a full Steinway Grand. you know, Covered and, in and flowers.
2: And... I think she'd had a couple of drinks. And I think she did it in a couple of takes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they have some early takes. I think she biffs a note or two. Probably had a, <laughs> maybe a few
2: too many. Calm down, nailed it the last time, though. Yeah, but wouldn't you imagine that would have taken all day? It didn't. No. Nope. So she went out, she recorded that. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm not big on on o Daddy, but Christine McVie also wrote Don't Stop. Mm-hmm. And she had the sense to give part of the vocal to Lindsay Buckingham, too.
1: She, This is something that would end up being a trick they'd repeat a couple more times in their career. They did it with Think About Me. They did it with Hold Me. Hold These me. are all McVie yeah. songs where, where Buckingham sings as well. Because, And here's the thing for me. For the longest time when I was a kid, I didn't realize that they were changing vocals. For some reason, the gloss that's applied to her voice makes their vocals sound very similar to each other. Like when they're saying, Don't stop, don't stop, thinking about tomorrow in the chorus, I can't tell whether it's Lindsay or whether it's Christy singing sometimes. No. everything about this record is perfect pretty much i mean the only question is you know how much credit does buckingham get and i say he deserves the lion's share because he does something like assemble the chain now the song itself everyone knows it if you don't love me now you'll never love me again i could still hear them saying you would never break the chain that actually is a line from a Stevie Nicks demo. She brought in an acoustic guitar demo, and it's a long, drifty song. It was never going anywhere, but it had that one very intriguing line. And Lindsay Buckingham, I heard that line, I it's like, mm, hold that, put that in my back pocket. <laughs> and then they were also working on another song of Christy McVie's called Keep Me There at the time. It even had vocals. There's a finished version in the vaults. that has been released. You can hear it. It wasn't up to par. It just drifted. There's something about it that didn't seem like, like it was really together, but there was a promising bit on the end of it where all of a sudden John McPhee starts playing this figure, dum da da dum da 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 dum dum and then the band starts going into this very long, frenetic jam. And Lindsey Buckingham literally just took that and said, you know what, I like that. He spliced it out of that song, came up with a new opening based on his own little bit, and then Stevie's bit, and there you have the chain. And so he created, he literally threw it into a stew, soup, you know, put the heat on, stirred it up, and came out with a classic song.
0: noticed on the chain this time around is that harmonium drone that sort of leads throughout the song it's one of those things you sort of take for granted unless you're literally listening for something specific it just it's part of the environment that buckingham creates but it is in fact an instrument playing a note right throughout the course of the the entire song it's brilliant
2: you know we almost didn't get it though Oh, yeah. I mean, they, how many times did they break up during the making of this thing? No, well, that, that too. But we almost didn't get it because toward the end, the engineers realized that oh, they, they were... played through the tape so right. many times.
1: They'd overdubbed so many times. they'd, actually they'd scrubbed lost the their
2: ox- sheen. <laughs> they'd their scrubbed the treble. oxide off, yeah. Right, and so the treble on the drums had all but gone, and <laughs> they panicked. Now, luckily, or I should say, thanks to the foresight of someone in the studio, they had master tapes backed up in a closet somewhere of the drums and the bass. But it's not like today where you can just import into Pro Tools or Logic <laughs> a file, files yeah. you need. Not, of right. course, that files in a digital environment degrade over time. But it's not like today. They were, of course, not lined up with the rest and so they had to hire at great expense this uh, specialist uh, audio engineer who came in and using an oscillator managed to get the original non-treble diminished versions of the drum recordings back in sync with <laughs> everything else so we I... almost didn't get the record <laughs> rumors literally saved by you know a high-tech
1: you know, freak of nature, uh, and uh, always be kind you just,
0: to your engineers. That's the lesson oh, here.
1: Well, that yeah, yeah, the lesson here is also I think Lindsey Buckingham ended up working with these people for the rest of his career, so he was probably <laughs> grateful at them for saving his baby. Um, and of course, this one was not like the 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 white album in terms of its critical reception or its commercial reception. This one shot straight to number one. Yeah. I think Go Your Own Way came out uh, a little bit before it. And I think the most interesting thing about Go Your Own Way uh, as a single is that on its B side uh, was the one full song that was recorded for rumors but was mysteriously cut from the album at the last second. And it's a Stevie Nicks song called Silver Springs. And it used to be really obscure. Like you could only find it on like the boxed set, the chain. You know, go pay $80 for that if you want it. Now nah, it's a lot easier to find. Um, Scott, I know you happen to think yeah that this is maybe just at least a decent stevie nicks song
0: i told you guys i think it's the greatest album ever recorded and to that end they left off (laughs) they left off maybe the best song i don't this is this is stevie nicks i think this is stevie nicks best song uh that she that she wrote for fleetwood mac and it's a song that was was bumped off, uh, I guess, at the last minute for another song. They said Lindsey Buckingham said it was too long. I, I don't, I don't know. It's like I a th- minute th- difference. I,
1: th- I looked at the lyrics again. It's about the it well, of course, about it the is.
0: lyrics. I, I, I would imagine so. But the weird thing is, they ended up releasing it at the time as the B side on "Go Your Own Way," which is this amazing back and forth. Um, you know, when you, when you, uh, when you go through. Our, let me come back to "Go Your Own Way" in just a second as I bring it into "Silver Springs." "Silver Springs" is is Stevie Nicks' response essentially, to go your own way. She was so upset, you know, shack it up's all you want to do. She begged Lindsey Buckingham to take that line out of go your own way, and he, and he wouldn't do it. And she wrote Silver Springs, which is, I, I shudder to think there are people who have not heard Silver Springs. It is it is a magical, gorgeous song with these heart-wrenching lyrics. Don't uh, say a,
1: that a, she's pretty. Don't say I, that she's she loves you. Baby, I don't, don't want to know. know.
0: But that's, I mean... I, my my favorite part is in Go Your Own Way, you have you have Lindsey Buckingham saying, uh, uh, if I could, baby, I'd give you my world. How can I, if you won't take it from me? In Silver Springs, uh, Stephen X responds and says, I know I could have loved you, but you would not let me, right? It's this back and forth between the two of them. And how haunting, how haunting are these lyrics? Knowing you're in this band together and will be for the foreseeable future, and you were romantically uh, involved, and now you're not, uh, and there's clearly still feelings. And I mean, are they are they actually soulmates that can't make things work? Is is being a soulmate more powerful than whatever you know love is? All these questions uh, when it comes to to Buckingham and Nix. But you get to the end of the song and these back-to-back lines, right? I'll follow you down till the sound of my voice will haunt you. One of the most distinctive, as Charlie said, female vocalists in all of rock history is saying her, her voice will haunt him. And then very next, you'll never get away from the sound of the woman that loved you, past tense, loved you. They are standing three feet from each other on stage every night doing these songs, occasionally Silver Springs. And if you've seen the dance or uh, uh, the 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 video, the dance, the way that those two look at each other as they're performing the end of the song, and Stevie Nicks is just ripping off these incredible vocals as she gets to the end. Well, was I just a fool? She sings the absolute hell out of it. Um, and, you know, musically that that melody that time cast its spell on you but you won't forget me it's just incredible you have these this pulsing almost heartbeat-esque organ synth b- behind a number of these lines and you put go your own way and silver springs back to back it's just i i almost don't have words for how incredible it is to listen to these songs and silver springs to me is again steven nick's single best song i can't i can't believe they left it off the album and i can't believe i still think it's the best album ever made despite the fact that silver springs is not on it and i weep if you have not yet heard silver springs
1: I weep for the fact that Silver Spring, Maryland didn't get this much-needed plug prior to now because (laughs) I would have loved to have grown up near a super cool – I actually grew up near Chevy Chase, and he was still somebody back when I was a kid. Um, Hey, I got a question for you guys. Um, So uh, what do you do when uh, you've been working all your life to make it as a rock musician and suddenly you taste big worldwide nationwide success and then you realize you hate each other? Uh, well, what you do is you put your head down and you act like professionals and you make the best album you can. Uh, and then what do you do when that album turns out to be one of the albums that people regularly consider the greatest album ever made? Um, <laughs> can you, and you still hate each other. That's the problem. Uh, because everything that made Fleetwood Mac unhappy with one another uh, prior to making rumors is just as bad afterwards. And now, of course, they're the biggest band on the planet. So they do what everyone must do which is tour, and then they take a year off and, I presume, get very addicted to cocaine because what, of course, they end up doing is releasing the most uncommercial follow-up to a mega-selling album in history. Before we get to that, does anybody want to say anything about you know, Rumors writ large or what it means to follow up an album like Rumors with an album like Tusk?
2: I just want to say that my uncle told me recently that he went to see Fleetwood Mac on July 4th, 1977 in Toronto. Huh. And I hated him for that. <laughs> that <laughs> was that was right in the middle of the
1: Rumors tour, the classic era. And, uh, you know, they could barely look at each other on stage. They're fighting at each other backstage. Uh, they have not only two consecutive number one albums, but this one is like, but, I mean, Thriller is the biggest selling album of all time. Wasn't this the biggest selling album of all time prior to Thriller? Is that correct, Scott? Or am That's I missing that?
0: Tra... I don't want to be wrong about this, but if not, it's awfully close.
1: It was extremely successful. Uh, and so there was a lot of pressure for a follow up. And uh, on, I will start the discussion by saying this that what Fleetwood Mac did for a follow up is one of the bravest, weirdest, strangest left turns that any band with that much on the line commercially ever could have decided to do which is release a double album and it's a double album full of 20 songs and there isn't a single friggin song on the album that sounds like anything on rumors if you liked rumors and you wanted more rumors nah my friend here's some tusk double albums of all time i happen to think it's an amazing record i happen to think it's my favorite fleetwood mac record i can criticize it in some ways some of them significant but i adore this i adore this for what it stands for as a statement artistically but also frankly for its own merits on, on in terms of its musical value on alone i love this album maybe more even than i love rumors uh, but i would love to hear what other people think because this is the most controversial album of fleetwood Mac's career
2: so i don't love this more Mm -hmm. than rumors and in fact i see this as being that thing that happens more often than you would think to bands when they've made their all-time classic if you look at the eagles what did they do after hotel california the long run, this is a lot better than the long run. Well, well, we can come to its merits, but they went, nah. What happened to Dire Straits after Brothers in Arms? Mm. Mm. Not that this band is quite in the same league, but what happens to Oasis after What's the Story Morning Glory? Mm-hmm. They released Be Here Now, and I see this replete, in fact, with the same cocaine problem (laughs) that is all over Be Here Now as being similar. This is, oddly enough, much more of a solo album than Rumours, which was recorded when they all hated each other and were having affairs and were heartbroken. This is a hit-and-miss album. It's an album that... I think falls foul of Buckingham's very conscious attempt not to repeat himself because he really does not. But he goes too far in not. It's one thing to say, I don't want to make a cookie cutter. I think he said at the time, I don't want to make Rumors 2 and Rumors 3. But you can at least keep some of the qualities (laughs) that (laughs) caused your last album to be both beloved and popular. And I don't hear them on Tusk except, and this confused the hell out of me when I first heard this, except on the opening track. <laughs> you hear the opening track, which is a, a Christine McVie song called uh, Over and Over. It's lush, it's sultry. You can absolutely imagine that it is moved on from rumors just that little bit. I, I know, it's so psychotic. What, what, what you hear, and this is why I mentioned Buckingham's attempt to get away from rumors, what you hear there <laughs> is, is a self-conscious uh, attempt to distance himself, but also, in my view, a certain insecurity, because much as Pink Floyd did after Dark Side of the Moon, Buckingham is nervous that he has sold out, or at least that he will be seen as this commercial product it's difficult for us to imagine now but all of the praise that we just gave rumors was actually not universal in 1977 a lot of the early reviews said this will be a commercial uh, explosion a lot of them said this is guaranteed to be played on the radio and sell out stadia and so on they didn't say this is wonderful hmm. that came a little bit later and it annoys buckingham and yeah. buckingham gets worried he starts to think i don't fit in i'm not cool anymore he gets into post-punk he gets into sparse <laughs> you, sound, music. you make it
1: sound like he gets into heroin no, he, but...
3: get, he
2: gets into fentanyl
1: <laughs> he gets into meth
2: he gets into post-punk but he gets in he gets into post-punk and he also <laughs> gets a little weird. I mean, he, at one point during the recording of this, he shows up having cut all his, his hair his off hair in the shower.
1: We did it all, not only that, with fingernail
2: and, scissors. He did it with again, fingernail scissors. We, we talk about recording. He completely baffles the engineers in the early days because he says things like, let's tape microphones to the floor and I'll sing lying down. Or, okay, I like this mix, but let's turn every single knob 180 degrees the other way and see what it sounds like. I think he's trying too hard. And so although this has its moment, I just don't know why, when you had such a good thing going, you would say, let's reject that entirely. I understand the need for artists to move on, whatever that means, but they didn't move on. They, they dropped the magic and you end up with this hit and miss, self-conscious, sprawling mess that I find personally disappointed. Sha-la-la, sha-la-la, sha-la-la.
1: I guess you'll find it appropriate then that he uh he gained access to the Beach Boys archives and was pulling the Smile <laughs> right. tapes during these sessions for you can hear definitely the influence on in songs like that's all for that's everyone That's the
0: exact one that I had in my notes that right. there's such a t- tremendous Brian Wilson influence on that's all for Yeah everyone.
1: I mean with, with all with you know the vibraphones and all that clearly right and uh you know but but it's a good metaphor too for an artist getting lost in their project perhaps i don't think that's the case here i understand charlie's point that 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 there's an anxiety of influence thing here for lindsey buckingham because he doesn't want to be seen as just like another pop you know pop sellout he's like i'm an artist with artistic desires and so yes he gets into post-punk and before you know it he's you know, post-punk's just a <laughs> gateway drug, and, and then he's recording in his bathroom with a giant bag of cocaine, singing songs like "You can love me, baby, but you can't go down." So I'm gonna tell you what it's really all, really all, really all, really all about, which sounds like this playground, you know, taunt, and it's so weird. This is the ledge I'm talking about, the second song on the album. It just it smacks you right in the face with it too. That's what I love about it. You heard over and over which is a beautiful song with this very metronomic, well calibrated ending This very tasteful guitar. As Charlie said, it sounds like, yeah, okay, here's an evolution from rumors. And all of a sudden primitivist art. It sounds like the Fauvists or something like that. You know, this this wild man, you know, you with this bizarre, like, you know, thrumming bass percussion. I can't tell whether it's the one or the other. Uh, it, it's alienating to some people to me it's absolutely invigorating and the fact that those songs those sort of bathroom demo type songs by buckingham sort of run in and out of like christy mcvee songs and stevie nicks songs all throughout the album it is crazy it's weird his his sort of dominance he gets like i believe eight songs on the record or eight or nine compared to like you know five five or six or seven to the other two uh, it um, imbalances the record but it just it kind of makes it like an exciting little thrill ride for me
3: I sing so many
1: get it completely when charlie says it doesn't hold together that's my big critique of it but when i love almost every single individual piece i I can't criticize it you know the way he does i find it to be yes clearly you know influenced by buckingham's also mcvee's and Nix's desires to not repeat themselves on rumors uh but all the better for that so go and do what
3: you want you have me and don't worry baby I'll be alright you'll never make me you never make me you'll never make me cry
1: none of them at the closest thing you'll find anything on Rumors is maybe McVie with a song like, uh, you know, you never make never me make cry. cry. It sounds a little yep. it sounds like Songbird, maybe. And think about me, you know, has a bit of that Rumours sheen to it. And then I don't hear anything that sounds like you know Stevie Nicks's stuff from Rumours and her stuff. Nobody wants to repeat themselves. That's why this record excites me so much. Scott, Ty, please break this tie.
0: Um, all right. So I'll just say straight that I I like. Tusk I'm not sure I love it as much as I as much as I appreciate it Um, and and that goes to uh, a number of factors I think Um, here's the weird thing is that I think this is the most consistent set of songs that Stevie Nicks ever brought to the band Uh, I think Christine McVie has some wonderful contributions you know Charlie mentioned it starts with over and over which does sound like a rumors continuation in a way or an extension and I think it closes that same way too. I think "Never Forget" is again a, a, a song that could sort of be seen as a "Rumors" extension, and so you you bookend all this mass weirdness with two songs that really are sort of common Fleetwood Mac sounding songs, but in the middle you have all of this weird stuff, and it's not Je-
1: that funny, is it? Right. So this stuff just gets bizarre. As
0: Jeff mentioned, you have these nervy. Frantic explosions of Buckingham songs set directly next to these just dreamy scenescapes that he produces for McVie and Stevie Nicks and they live alongside each other. Here on, on Tusk, there's a stretch here. Christine McVie is essentially absent from this album for an entire album. There's, I think, a string of 10 songs in which Nixon and Buckingham go go back and forth and she's gone. And then she comes back with Never Make Me Cry and Brown Eyes on, on side three of the record. But there's a, a huge stretch where she's just gone. It's weird sequencing there, too. Uh, I don't think the album starts out extremely strong. Uh, outside of that, that first song, I think side one is not the strongest side. I think side two is my favorite. You get uh, what makes you think you're the one from Buckingham, and something that's on that song that also repeats itself at a few places is, I mentioned how pristinely recorded Rumors is, and Tusk is too, to an extent, but you get to what makes you think you're the one, and you have this abrasive staccato drum sound. That is present in a few places. It is not the warm, inviting, lush drums of rumors. It is something completely different. (laughs)
1: so many examples of intentional looseness that you never would have heard on Rumors all over Tusk. Like on Sarah, the whole thing feels so much ropeier in some ways, it would have been whip taut on Rumors. Yeah, and that's
2: why it's not very good. I can't bear <laughs> that track because all I want to do is take it and fix it. <laughs> i love sarah uh i'll talk
1: about it in a second but then uh but i, I actually love that 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 laziness but you hear it on storms storms know? is my
0: favorite Nick's track on this album and i it just really sort of begins with the, this sort
1: of like little flurry of notes like you'd have a, a very tight opening you know and ending if this was like an earlier fleetwood Mac yeah song. but
2: but with storms as well i I've, i hear that as a as a Prestige as Stevie Nicks doing herself.
1: Stevie Nicks doing herself. Well, that's so, true. As far back as like nineteen seventy five, folks, like she would go out on stage and Rihanna, and then that in, you know inimitable croak of hers uh, go like, "This is a song about a Welsh witch. <laughs> it's called Rhiannon." You know, it's like it's, it's old hat for her. So for her to go back to it with Sisters of the Moon, that's the old hat. You no, know, but trick I just moment.
2: Meant you know, musically it, it felt as if she mm-hmm. sat down to write a stevie nicks song but then remembered that lindsay didn't want them to do that and so stepped back 12 paces <laughs> i like storms i don't know scott i know you like it at least i like
0: enough. i like storms yeah. uh i like beautiful child uh which is on oh i think that's a glorious yeah, yeah which is uh uh, on the back half of the album. Uh, and lyrically, uh, I'm not a child anymore. I'm tall enough to reach the stars. I'm old enough to love you from afar. Too trusting, yes, but then women usually are. Uh, and Nix's voice is just front and center. They'd have to mask it in the future for reasons we'll get into, but it's still strong and it's still powerful here on Tusk at a song like Beautiful Child. I don't know how you can not like the title track. I <laughs> <laughs> you have Mick Fleetwood slapping lamb chops with spatulas to get the right percussive sound Just, uh, that's wait, how dude, nuts it is are there people
1: out there who don't like Tusk I, I, I
0: assume there are hello I, I, do people There's not like Charlie. fun Charlie Charlie doesn't like fun or Tusk apparently
1: You tell me you don't
2: like toast. I don't like tough. Oh,
1: it's real savage, like Charlie. Real savage. So I told you <laughs> at the beginning
2: that you would probably kick me off this episode. Uh, well, yeah, well,
1: I, you know, what? We're, I guess we're, it's too late now. We're too oh, far. you haven't
2: been this upset with me since I said I didn't like the Beatles' rendition of Money.
1: I, w- I knew you were gonna
2: go. With money. <laughs> that was where I was gonna go to. Well, I suppose
1: speaking of Money, we're pot committed now, so we're gonna stick with you, Charlie. I really love, you know, you know that kind of stuff. I, I. I don't know. I think that I agree with Scott here that this is the best stuff uh, of Stevie Nicks's career, all told. Even though it doesn't hit the highs of some other albums, I hear a song like "Sarah," and you know, I, I, he's, I, I, I would never accuse Mick Fleetwood of playing sloppy drums. He's not. What he's playing is basically like brushes, right? So you get a much lighter, you know, drum pattern. It doesn't have that, you know, that that tautness, but it shouldn't because. The tack piano that I believe is Nick's playing is, is so floaty and dreamy itself. The whole song is just like a reverie. It's a dream. It's why it was kind of doomed as a single because you know they edited it down, but it, it's still basically a drifty song. It doesn't have a tight structure. That's probably one of the other things that aggravates Charlie about it. But I love it. I love that. That, to me, is classic Stevie.
2: Yeah, the, the structure and the production is loose. It's not the playing. You, you could never accuse Fleetwood Mac's back end of that.
1: him has these wonderful little cameos yeah the home demo sounding stuff is an acquired taste but once you have acquired it a song like i know i'm not wrong Mm
3: -hmm.
1: which you know was basically kind of the genesis of the entire tusk sessions it's a song that he like did like 20 different versions of which are all available by the way he was tinkering with it constantly never quite satisfied so Unsatisfied with it, that he actually switched it out secretly on the CD release of the album *Tusk* like 1990. He had them insert another version, which is the definitive one. But it's a beautiful little nonsense number. Again, a kind of a nursery rhyme. But you know, I know, uh, I know, I'm not wrong. And then there's these little horns and harmonicas playing in the background. da 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 da. It's a simple childlike song but that's all it's trying to be it has just a pure pop sweetness to it Um, I like that kind of stuff don't like it they look at songs like not that funny and uh that's enough for me and they just run screaming for the hills but i also think there are stuff that that's much more sort of um, well-constructed intentionally like uh walk a thin line you know that's a very very well put together vocal a backing vocal you know from stevie and from christy to get all those was that took a lot of work. That's much more in the Brian Wilson smile sessions kind of mode that I'm really actually looking for from, you know, Lindsey Buckingham when it comes to it. I just don't really see anything on this album that bugs me except for the really crude synth tone used on Angel, that Stevie Nicks Angel song where I think she tries to play raunchy and, you know, Stevie, you're you're like an elfin fairy, okay? You know, you <laughs> you're like a tiny witch you're, you're not like a raunchy biker sister you know it's just not your look so that song never quite landed with me but i just i really love this album i love the ambition of it and i think it, it holds together as long as you acknowledge that it does not have that cohesiveness that you come to expect from. it's not melancholy and the infinite sadness scott
0: i, th- I mean i think that's right i i um I, I think I was first exposed to this via the camper van Beethoven track for track cover <laughs> of uh, of Tusk, uh, before hearing the original Fleetwood Mac version. The that was entire
1: my first album, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and, and and part of it is is just embracing, you know, Buckingham's ideas of what his song should be, and clearly having the idea that he wanted nothing to sound like it had sounded before. I mean, there was no it w- there was no intention, there was no purpose in his mind of trying to repeat what they did. With rumors and um, and I mean he succeeded right I mean I think Sarah was the highest charting single and Tusk did okay but this is one of the most commercially has to be one of the most commercially disappointing albums uh, released uh, because of the fact it followed up rumors you had all this goodwill and you do release something that certainly rumors owners were not expecting whatsoever
1: they were they 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 got no quarter. Uh, after track three there's just no quarter for that poor sap who wanted just like a nice sweet you made love and fun (laughs) because there's not a single song that sounds anything like that um and i have that's one other reason i love tusk i have to salute the bravery i mean that is some serious it's like they didn't have fu money yet Uh, this is like lindsey buckingham kind of Cocaine is a hell of a drug, let's put it that way. Uh, not only because I'm sure Lindsey Buckingham was under the influence of a huge amount of it while he was recording this album, uh, but because his megalomania seemed to convince everyone else in the band to go along with him.
0: Right, so... And, and
1: basically I, sabotaging their commercial
0: So the, the question there, I think it's an interesting question there as to whether it is sort of that megalomania, uh, Buckingham, or the other... The other aspect to consider is whether or not, despite how much they hated each other, they still trusted each other professionally and enough artistically, yeah. and artistically enough to say, this is weird, but we're going to do this with you. Um, that's a, that's an that's an even more interesting angle to the album, it's, I think. It's
1: a big trust fall for all of them, right? Yeah. It really is what it is. It's like the office where you're like, I, I, I don't love you, I just work with you which is kind of what Fleetwood Mac must have felt like in 1979 like this is the office we're not friends we don't i think oh gosh there's I remember that I can't remember it's from like maybe 1980 or 81 where like, Christy McVie is like saying like well, you know Stevie Nicks she she used to have a good head on her shoulders back in 1975 but uh well we don't socialize much <laughs> it's just just so cold it's just so cold but uh but the music they make together. Still, they're willing to take chances, and I think it comes across really well, even if Charlie doesn't. Uh, another thing I think comes across really well is the Fleetwood Mac album that has slipped through the cracks for almost all fans, except me. Um, I know Scott probably never even knew it existed until we booked this show, uh, but I love it, and he hates live albums, but I like him and. I really like Fleetwood Mac Live, which was a document mostly of the Tusk tour in 1980. There are a couple of extra songs on it, like new recordings that aren't really very interesting. They're all rather unprepossessing. Um, But I really like this band Live. And as I said earlier, the versions of Monday Morning and in particular I'm So Afraid on Fleetwood Mac Live are titanic. To hear Lindsey Buckingham play the solo that he plays at the end of "I'm So Afraid" uh, with his bare fingers, and you know, to just you know, think about how fast his fingers have to be moving up and down the frets to get the sounds that are coming out of uh, them—it just staggers the mind. For anybody who knows anything about how guitars are played, to hear him draw that out of it with his fingers is just—it's like watching a master or listening to a master at work.
3: All the years, so many ways to count the tears I never change, I never will, I'm so afraid.
0: I only heard the live album because um well it was in the list of albums to listen to. Uh, yep. <laughs> and I already I mentioned my disagreement as to the the I think the Monday morning uh studio version from uh from 75 is superior to the, oh, the live version. This one is here. so
1: much better anyways.
0: Well, if you were looking for more rumors, more pop-oriented songwriting from Fleetwood Mac, you were uh you were in luck. I guess in a couple of ways because uh in the interim Uh, between Tusk and the next Fleetwood Mac album, there was a conscious decision. uh, The band band politely informed Lindsey Buckingham that they would not be making another (laughs) Tusk. So he said, I guess I'm going to have to go make my weird solo albums uh, and get that out of my system if we're not going to do this in the realm uh, generally of Fleetwood Mac. And so... He did. Uh, made one called Law and Order, and Jeff knows these Buckingham uh, solo albums better than I do. Uh, and then Stevie Nicks also made an extremely successful solo album, which would be a point of consternation between Nicks and Buckingham forevermore. Uh, yeah. Belladonna, which uh, was on one of our—I um, well, don't remember which episode it was—one of our exclusive content episodes, we talked about uh, Belladonna. Yeah, we uh,
1: did. It was because we were talking about uh, music of '81. I think it was one-hit Wonders, I think. It was Edge of Seven Feet. It was nineteen eighty ones when it came out. She was on one of the past ones.
0: And so you have have Stevie Nicks' profile rising even further with, uh, even farther with her solo album and and Lindsey Buckingham getting his weirdness out with his solo albums. And they come back together for a 1982 album called Mirage. And I think there are many ways you can take the name of this album. Uh, Perhaps chiefly... Is this really Fleetwood Mac or is this the illusion of what listeners would want to hear from a Fleetwood Mac album? I think that's a question that really pops up in every corner of Mirage.
2: a lot i did i much prefer this album to tusk there is a run on the first side that's all right book of love and then gypsy which is their best song which is magnificent which is which is back to rumors good the whole album is not it doesn't have the unbroken quality it's beginning to sound more 1980s in production, and Fleetwood Mac were a 70s band, a late 60s and 70s band, and the production of that era suited them. But oddly enough, Gypsy sounds as if it could have been recorded in any decade. It's a brilliant recording. Uh, Hold Me is is a wonderful song on the second side. I don't like Oh Diane. Because I can't stop thinking of Jimmy Buffett. For some reason, <laughs> whenever I hear that song, I think of Jimmy Buffett. It was a good
1: single in, in the United
2: Kingdom, too. So blame, blame your compadres over there, my friend. You're right. You're right. And then, I don't know
1: what they're... I, it is a very popular song that is beloved,
2: but not by me. And Eyes of the World annoys me. Um, it, it's... It's just not quite there. But I think it's a good record. Um uh, I I think if you had oddly enough combined this with you know I just realized what I was about to do, which which is essentially to say the white up should have been one, one record. <laughs> but if you could combine this with some of Tusk, you'd have an absolute classic, but that is just I, the most
1: blasphemous thing I'm I have sorry,
2: ever. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. You would combine this with Tusks? But look, let me, let it's, me like, it's, like, it's
1: like merging. It's like merging champagne. No, with, you'd have to record like...
2: Tusks, of course, properly. <laughs> 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 have to do it properly. All Gypsy, right. on its own, would, would make this album worth buying. I agree with that. And G- Gypsy is so beautifully constructed... It's tight and well produced. The lyrics are engaging. Her voice is magnificent. the 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 beginning of it is odd. It's this sort of little half step, doo doo, and then you're in. the The quick step up right into the song, doo 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 boom,
1: and, then and, and, the, and and that, it, and that yeah. sting, that sting of Lindsey Buckingham's his, his pedal steel there. They, do, and it comes in, and you realize that that's the way he's going to be playing guitar on the song for the entire song until the end. Um,
2: and and course- again, I, I don't want to re-litigate the question of Stevie Nicks' voice, and I'm on the side that it's wonderful, but it's probably perfect here—the most wonderful on this song because she has such a range. She she starts off sounding wistful, and. Uh, when she needs to kick it up, she does. Um, and sometimes Nix actually takes it too far. I, I don't know if you've heard Stevie Nix's rendition of Silent Night. Oh no, I have. It's very yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, beca- because because it, it's it's unique. There's only one person <laughs> who could be singing that. Well, but that again, that... you have a way with the euphemism. Well, but again, that feels to me like she's too self-conscious. Whereas this, right? I mean, this is why she was put on the
4: earth.
1: I think it is her most perfect vocal. I, I and I think that the way that she almost has the shudder in her voice, this, this that quaver in her voice that defines her, you know, her signature sound. You know, and the verses like so back to the Velvet Underground, it it, it betrays such vulnerability. Uh, there's there's such there's a softness there. There's there's an emotional availability that you get just from the sound of her voice. But then when she bursts out at the end with those big, you know, you see your gypsy you see your gypsy, and then these big o oh, o oh, o oh, at the end, and you know hitting those high notes to go out, uh, to take the song out, you know to its final playout uh, is so striking. And I think again, it's just one of her most successful vocal performances. And then of course, it's all there to cue up the maybe my single favorite Lindsey Buckingham guitar appearance on record in Fleetwood Mac's recorded history which is that little final cascade of notes that he plays to end the song.
0: I think there are two absolutely phenomenal Buckingham guitar pieces on this album. One is, of course, on Gypsy. Uh, but do not sleep on what he does on Hold Me, which is mm-hmm. just yeah. phenomenal. When you go through, first of all, that's my favorite song on the album. Uh, and it's I, I love Hold Me so much. I love that opening, uh, the piano uh, the way and the way it dumps right into uh, Mick Fleetwood's drums. I just and and the, and the lyrics start at the same time. I that that first fifteen seconds is magical, um, and then you have of course the the blended vocals in "Hold Me." One of the few times here that all three are singing together: Nick's and Buckingham and McV. You have the return of this fat snare drum sound from Mick Fleetwood. It's wonderful, and in that chorus when you have that single note ascending guitar. Dum 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 as the as the chorus goes up. But that, that that solo, when you have you have dueling electric solos that feed into an acoustic acoustic strums and an acoustic solo, it's t- it's just incredible what that does to a song like Hold Me. And that's again, Buckingham's magic. Uh, there's a there's a demo version of Hold Me floating out there which is pretty good, uh, but nothing compared to what you get in the end, and the way that he doubles up McVee's uh, vocal lines, uh, they're solo on that demo, and what Buckingham does is he toughens them up. You know, his, his voice toughens up those lines and makes, you know, McVee is really known for, rightfully so, writing these love songs, A Thousand Ways to Say I Love You, and Christine McVee's songs generally. This is not necessarily a love song, especially when you when you hear the demo version because the lyrics are a bit different. It's Hold Me Like a Good Man Should or something along those lines. And it's really her relationship with Dennis Wilson for the Beach Boys, which is falling apart and disintegrating. Um, you want the percentage, but I'm the fool paying the dues. There's, there's an edge there that Buckingham finds by doubling himself on McVie for a lot of the verses on on Hold Me. That is just a perfect pop song it is one that of course would never see the light of day on tusk but the brilliance of the band is they could do that and come back and do something like hold me on mirage and i guess going back to the original point that guitar work the the trail on gypsy in addition to those solos here on hold me there's another wonderful trail out uh buckingham solo on hold me as well two just fantastic moments of his on the record (laughs)
1: I like this record a lot more than its critical reputation has it which only says it you know rates it as a mediocre Fleetwood Mac album um <clears throat> or more than I probably rightfully should given that I think that there are a couple songs on here that I just don't like that's all right is one of them for me mm-hmm. you know if, if Charlie I can dislike Tusk I can just just like warmed over Buckingham Nicks. it's
0: an eight-year-old hero. song yeah it's a 74 song
1: I mean and, and, and not only that but it's like it it announces its origins so clearly too because it's a 1974 song right it's buckingham nicks there's southern california la recording what are they going to be doing oh god it's country rock yeah this is this is stevie nicks kind of doing a country rock kind of a thing i don't know it doesn't work for me their voice is not suited style um Book of Love is nicer. It's it's flimsier, though. And that's the problem with a lot of Buckingham songs on here. They, they, most of them have co-writes, which is telling. Richard Dashett is is uh, you know doing a lot of the co-writes for these songs. And the reason for that, of course, is that he gave away a lot of his really great ideas to his first solo album, Law & Order, which I like. It's flawed, but I like it. And you definitely hear songs that, that just beg to be done by Fleetwood Mac, and they would have fit in better than something like Can't Go Back. Which is very pretty, but it's insubstantial. There's nothing really to it. Same Empire State's the one that sounds the closest to like a bad song on his debut album. So don't if you don't like that song, well <laughs>
2: I think Empire State is a bad song.
1: I think it's a bad song. Everything on Law and Order is better than that song, but that's the one that sounds the most like it. I don't know what it's doing on this record.
2: like when he was listening to brian wilson he went back to the beach boys in their early years when they would try and find a random city and write something about it so you sort of get them singing songs <laughs> about girls from salt lake city well <laughs> you know it shouldn't be hard for lindsey
1: buckingham to find his way to new york i think he's been there i don't know um but anyways you know the thing about uh the rest of the songs on the album is that his. Work in patching up other people's songs is less evident here yes, than I think it's ever been before. And I think that's one of the elements that's missing in the Fleetwood Mac dynamic. I do hear a lot of really clever stuff that he did with Love and Store. Okay, I think that's a really well-produced opener. It's a Christy McVie song that I think airs just on the right side of you know preciousness it could be too sickeningly sweet but there's just something very beautiful about that buoyant floaty you know drum track that Mick Fleetwood lays down and the same thing with McVie on bass the rhythm makes that song what it is and you know it it, it could be dense and, and sludgy but instead it's light and floaty Problem with Only Over You, which is a well written song. All right. But I just think that I don't know. I I don't know if it was Buckingham's decision or for someone else's, but it's the first of first Fleetwood Mac hit I can think of, at least, that sounds dated. It sounds very 80s. Those synth tones sound very, very 80s. There's actually an early alternate version of this, with just just Christine McVie on piano with the drums and the bass and all that, and it sounds like a much better song. Mm-hmm. That's, a you much better. Hear, you, that's a much you can, better mix. You can hear the melody, yep. and, there's, and that's actually got a really nice melody. When she sings Angel, Please Don't Go, I'll Miss You If You Go, that's a really nice melody, but uh, it's hard to hear it. Uh, when you have to get past some of the gloss of the final production.
3: People say they know me But they don't see My hopes your future Your future
1: strange album and that there were a ton of outtakes from it too. A lot of them are very good. There were like 7 or 8 songs from Mirage that weren't released. Teen Beat, Goodbye Angel. There's a really great Stevie Nicks song called like is it if I was it like if
0: I
2: don't love you or something like that. If you
0: were my love, right?
2: If You Were My Love, they yeah. could have been on the album. And Wait, I don't... so you're saying that they were capable of looking at an album they thought was too long and then cutting out <laughs> a lot of the fat? Well, no. Some of these songs, I think,
1: were better than what made it on the album. Oh, well, and I again, it it it's <laughs> <laughs> curious song curation decisions. I don't know what to say, but apparently what they wanted to say to one another was, uh, we're done. So because they went on tour from Mirage, it was a small tour, and then they—I don't know—they didn't officially break up, but they promptly all scattered to their four corners and started releasing solo albums. Uh, uh, I think Lindsey Buckingham had had success with Holiday Road. He, uh, you know, that was the song for National Lampoon's. Was it uh, just the regular vacation?
0: I think it I makes think- an appearance in all of them, but it debuted with, uh, or at least the first two, European and Chris, or European and original. But it, it was in the original.
1: I am gonna give a shout out to that song. That's a that's a damn good song.
0: It's a fantastic I mean, song,
1: yes. I mean Lindsey Buckingham, you know, really should have saved that song for Fleetwood Mac, but I will take it in the form that he gave it to us in.
0: that will pop up very soon interesting percussive choices where the dogs barking are (laughs) is is how the the uh, the melody moves on
1: but but that feels like loose and limber and funny and light It, it doesn't feel programmatic right and you know very slick which is what the album that comes next does feel like because what happens is Lindsay Beckham starts a new project in 85 and the rest of the band members finally you know, hover back into orbit. Stevie Nicks now, I think, is heading to rehab for cocaine. You see, she's become such an addict to cocaine that not only uh, has she lost her voice, but she didn't lose her voice from actually putting cocaine up her nose, you would see. It wasn't because she boiled her septum away. The reason she lost her voice was actually just because so much cocaine dulls your pain receptors. So... When she blew out her vocal cords on the road, she didn't actually realize that she'd done it to herself. Uh, Why wasn't she feeling pain from taking cocaine? She found an alternate way to take cocaine that wasn't as dangerous for your nose or your vocal cords. Uh, I won't get specific about how that cocaine was taken. Uh, Okay, I guess I'll get specific. It was taken suppositorily. Yes, this is one of the weird rock lore things that has to be discussed when it comes to Stevie Nicks. She was using so much cocaine at that point that she couldn't even get it all up her nose. She had to find other ways to use it. She checks into rehab. She comes out. She's barely involved with the making of this album. She's drunk when she's there. They're recording it in Lindsey Buckingham's bathroom, and she's like horror bedroom or something like that. She's horrified by it. But what ends up becoming Tango in the Night in 1987 is a very weird way to end the Lindsey Buckingham era of Fleetwood Mac. And, and there are people out there who are Mac fans who will defend this record uh, very strongly. In fact, I do not understand for one second what they're going on about it because I really, really have never liked Tango in the Night one bit.
0: I, I think you'd be surprised, maybe not, about how well this album sold. This, there were There were singles, there were hits, And a lot of people bought Tango in the Night, and it just sort of disappeared. I mean, when do you think about or hear about Tango in the Night from Fleetwood Mac? It just it doesn't really happen unless you perhaps hear Everywhere or Little Eyes on the uh, on the uh, local soft rock station. It just sort of disappeared. Um, And if it were higher higher quality, it certainly would not have. I don't like Tango in the Night. I think there's a lot wrong with it. Uh, There are there are a, a, a handful of highlights. One of the most disappointing things of Tango in the Night is that the performances are so muted. I don't know if there's any sort of standout uh, rhythm section track. Right? Uh, you take Mick. Flitwood. Yes, so we
1: talked about this in our notes. How yeah. do you have the greatest, one of the greatest, most professional, most distinctive rhythm acts in rock in your band, and then you turn them into sounding like session pros?
0: It's just weird. Uh, it's weird, and I, it also extends to Buckingham in a way too. I, I don't think there are any, you know, s- just super Buckingham performances here on the record either. At least that come to, to top of mind. It's just the the musical performances are so muted up and down. There are certainly '80s Ask production choices that don't age very well with uh, with synth use and, and sequencer use, and, and even some. Well, by all accounts, Fleetwood's cocaine uh, problem was out of hand well, way, way out of hand by this point too. So that could be why there's some drum machine usage on Tango in the night too. but it could just be a technology choice on the, on, on the uh, 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 by, by Buckingham to do that on, on this album too. Um, I, I really like Big Love, which is the first track on the album. It is it really shouldn't work. There's no reason why it should work. It's just strange, percussive, uh, hypnotic, sort of track uh later in the in, in it there's this alternating male female moaning to approximate a uh, a rhythm track right uh, and i yeah. don't know if it should work but it does for me i, I like big love i think it's one of buckingham's uh, success stories on tingle the night I- is so out of it. Uh, Seven Wonders, which is a song, when I heard it when I was playing back for this uh, episode, man, I have not thought of Seven Wonders in probably 20 years. It has been so long since I've heard that that song. And yet, yes, that, that, that synthesizer keyboard riff does get stuck in your head. I did remember it. But that's a song that Nick essentially had no hand in writing. Uh, ended up singing it. And her voice is not good. Her voice is not good on Seven Wonders, but it is horrific on When I See You Again later on in the album. It is so bad. Buckingham tells the story. He had to pick his way through different takes to piece together little snippets of, of Nix's vocals that, that would possibly work together. And at some point on When I See You Again, after the bridge, he just throws up his hands and says, forget about it, and finishes it himself. Buckingham finishes the vocals on When I See You Again because Nix is essentially incapable of doing so herself. Uh, there, there times.
1: Great, <clears throat> there are two great anecdotes about how pathetic a state her voice was in during these sessions that's one of them and then the other one is they're right there in the song it's a song called family man Mm -hmm. and then like right there in the chorus like in instead of having uh like you know stevie nix's normal voice they just have like a cut up like you know version of her singing you know like the hook of the song and she's all like hard to hear and all fragments she's clearly been chopped up and digitized and That's an inside joke because apparently Nix had been drinking so much that she could go to the studio, record the backing vocals with everyone else, think that she'd done a fine job, <laughs> and then leave the studio and find out later that like her vocals had to be erased because she was just like warbling and out of out of pitch, out of key, completely oblivious to how she sounded she was in a really bad place during these sessions and it shows on all of her songs there's not a single one of them that deserves to be remembered
3: when
4: I see
1: you again
4: will it be the same when I see you When I see you again,
0: will your great eyes
4: still say, What's the matter, baby?
3: What's the matter, baby?
4: What's the matter, baby? What's the matter, baby, baby, baby? baby? What's the matter, baby? What's the matter, baby?
0: Not a baby. baby isn't it midnight is a weird she approximation of what Fleetwood Mac <clears throat> might play if they wanted a rock radio hit in 1987 it's just very hard yeah. and glittery
1: I kind of like that one yeah. actually but it does feel it feels like so like there's an, there's an alternate mix of it that's more like what Buckingham originally thought of it as sort of a more stripped down sound that Is superior for that reason. It doesn't have the sort of rocked up rock radio touches that the final version has, but it's a well written song.
0: I like little lies I do like little lies it's it's a McV song that again has all of them singing on it Stevie Nicks even gives a passable tell me lies which is uh, repeated through the chorus a bunch of times and a, a sort of exotic sounding synth parts if I could turn- I do. I like Little Eyes. I like the title track, which is a Buckingham uh, uh, thing, it's kind of foggy, and it's it's like the, the cover. The guitar at the end saves that yeah, one for me. Yeah. yeah, and then Big Love. I mean, those are the three that really stick out to me. But for the most part, the Night is is essentially a, a mess of an album, and I think really annoyed Buckingham that he was going to do a solo album, and Mick talked him into doing a Fleetwood Mac album, and then he gets the the content, he gets the contributions, and it's <laughs> this. And he's got to find a way to make an album out of it, uh, which he did eventually. And it did sell well, but from a quality control standpoint, not super. And that would, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but that would lead to to his leaving the band very soon after the the completion of Tango in the Night.
1: Now, we've been keeping this from you here at Political Beats because we we like surprises. But this is actually Charlie's favorite Fleetwood Mac album. Uh, So, Charlie, do you want to talk about it?
2: I... Do not consider this my favorite Fleetwood Mac album. Shock, horror! I do think that it spawns some good singles, though. Don't tell uh, me you don't tell me you're one of those people who defends everywhere. I do like everywhere. Oh, like- oh no!
1: Oh no, Charles! That was worse than being. <laughs> that was worse than saying mean things about Tusk. Oh, it's one of my least favorite songs by this band. Something's happening.
3: Nothing!
2: I like That's Little fine. Lies. I like Seven Wonders. I like Big Love. Big Love is great. You could have put As Long as You Follow on this album, and it would have worked. Well, I think well. I think As Long as You
1: Follow deserved better than to be stuck on Tango at the Night. Well we'll, we'll,
2: well, we'll come on to As Long as You Follow, but so I, I think it would it would have worked. But but no, I think otherwise it doesn't work as an album. The title track is horrible, absolutely horrible, and I hate Family Man. Family Man seems to make it onto Greatest Hits albums. It seems to be played on the radio, and I, I've never understood why. It's like if they're going to play Fleetwood Mac, they have to pick the worst Fleetwood
1: Mac song <laughs> that they
2: can to torture you with.
1: That's why. That's why. And uh, <clears throat> Lindsey Buckingham, as Scott pointed out, didn't really think very highly of it either. He didn't like the experience, and he quit. He didn't even tour the record. The rest of the band took Tango on the Night Out on tour, but Buckingham refused to go. He's like, I'm done. And so they toured without him and the guitarists they got to replace Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsey Buckingham by the way, you want to, Here's the ultimate compliment you can pay to a guitarist. It takes two guitarists to replace him on
0: Twice. The road. Twice. Ha- Cuz you know when <coughs> they left when they fired him this time they needed Mike Campbell and uh, uh what's his name from uh, from Crowded House, House, Neil Finn. Neil Finn. They had to get two people right. to replace him again
1: exactly this man has fingers of gold because yes they got i believe his name was uh Rick vito and billy burnett yeah uh these guys to replace him uh, in the touring band and after the tour was done they ended up getting inducted into the actual band the band band itself and becoming the new members of fleetwood mac would it work out in the long run we shall see but in the meantime It was time to release a greatest hits, which is not really an occasion, you know, that we have to spend too much time dwelling upon if not for the fact that it does have two extra songs on it recorded by this new band. And instead of just being typical throwaways, uh, this is I wouldn't say it's like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Greatest Hits level essential songs. But these are very good songs, and they're easily lost in Fleetwood Mac's discography. They're as long as you follow, which is a Fleetwood, which is a Christine McVie song. And then there's the one I really love the most, which is No Questions Asked by Stevie Nicks. Both of these are better than any single song on Tango in the Night, except maybe Big Love. And uh, I kind of, it's kind of I think it's a shame that they're forgotten.
0: I half agree with you on that. I, I don't like No Questions Asked as much as you do. Um, I think it's kind of a boring lockstep drum track from McFleetwood. I'm not sure it serves the song very well. But as long as you follow from Christine, that is a really great song that does have an interesting uh, rhythm section going on. Uh, it's a nice bass line from, from John. Um, it, and it sounds, it sounds, and he's gone, but it sounds like, like it could have been a Lindsay Buckingham production of a McVee song. And he knew exactly how to make her songs sparkle. Uh, it's also perhaps one of the best uh, Vito guitar solos i mean it's like damning with faint praise but it, it is a good guitar solo from vito that, that also serves the song i think as long as you follow that is the uh, that's the that's the high quality uh, song from the credits itself its it,
2: Saying that at this point, Christine McVie is the most successful member of the band,
0: right? Oh, by far.
1: I mean, and the and the one who has the, the true like the unbroken connection all the way. To, she's been playing with them since 1968. Uh, right. In terms of the people who are songwriters, frontline members, they have voices, and so they have a big say. Okay, uh, yeah, she is the one who's been there consistently, delivering the whole time, just sort of you know, like steady as she goes. You know, Everybody else is going through their coke binges, and then there's Christy. Here's an over and over. Okay, there you go. All right, yeah, here's a hold me. There you go. Oh, yeah, here's an as long as you follow. There you go. Like She's always been consistent. And of course, she's the one who had all the big singles on Tango in the Night. Um, and uh, she uh, is unfortunately not enough, in my opinion, to save behind the mask, which is the – the album that was done without Lindsey Buckingham, uh, the uh, it was the one with the Vito and the Burnett lineup. It's nineteen ninety. I think everything that's wrong with this album sort of exemplifies everything that was wrong with Fleetwood Mac as a studio band. Their fundamental failing after Buckingham left. Everybody who took place, who took replaced another member in Fleetwood Mac prior to this, redefined the band in their own name and their own image. They had the ability to do that. When Buckingham took over, Buckingham and Nicks. They weren't chained to the Bob Welch era. When Welch took over, he wasn't chained to the Peter Green era or anything like that. Sure, they'd play some of those songs, but they had their own stuff. They were able to make their way with their own material. After the huge the commercial massiveness of, you know, rumors and tusk and all of that, it's not possible anymore. Fleetwood Mac now is a brand forever. It's come to mean only the one thing in the minds of the audience that's gonna buy a ticket or buy an album so that whoever's coming in is just going to have to do a lindsey buckingham impression and the question the only is like you think to yourself is that a good fleetwood mac song what you're basically saying to yourself is could i imagine lindsey buckingham playing on that it's no longer like a news different style of fleetwood mac it's all just sort of attempts to kind of emulate what the buckingham era was like that said there are some good songs from these eras There aren't a lot of them on this album, though. I don't really like Behind the Mask. I will speak up in phrase of uh, Love is Dangerous, which I really do like. So again, Stevie Nicks' voice is continuing to fall apart.
0: To the extent, and I don't know I don't know how, how close anyone's listened to Behind the Mask, uh, but there's a song called The Second Sadly, Time. Sadly, I
1: have, quite a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's a song called The Second Time, right near the end, and there's a terrible edit at like 44 seconds in where you can absolutely tell that it's yeah. a totally different take that Nicks' vocals is from. It just changes, you know, it's different tenor, different... It's just so obvious um, and I don't know if that's because she wouldn't record again or couldn't record again, but it sounds just—it sounds terrible.
1: Well, yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, Buckingham would never have allowed something
0: like oh, that. Oh, I'm sure. The
1: Mac album, yeah,
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, Buckingham would not. Absolutely not. Yes, yes, that's one of the that's one of the points is that you know production-wise and, and 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 sort of who's who's making sure all these contributions are being uh, produced to the to the best level. That's not here. Um, you know, the, the sound of the album. Um, Buckingham, not Buckingham, but McVie's bass, it it exists largely as an idea. It's such a trebly album. Uh, That low end (laughs) is not present. And they hand over the writing. You know, both Nick's and McVie are still here. Eight of the 13 tracks, I think I counted, were were Vito Burnett tracks. They they sort of hand over. These
1: guys are not Lindsey Buckingham either is the problem.
0: I (laughs) think some of the Vito tracks are all right. I think the Burnett tracks are pretty bad. Oh, they're Um, not good. There's one. There's one called "When the Sun Goes Down," which is a Vito Burnett co-write, and if it were not a Fleetwood Mac album, like that would be. I think that's a decent song, but it really doesn't fit on anything that you would think would be on an album like B- "Behind the Mask." Um, "Do You Know" is a is a um, is a Christine McVie song, and again, it's 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 someone trying to do what Buckingham would do to her songs to make them sort of shine, and failing. And it does someone who doesn't understand how to get that. Uh, how to get past that sort of lightness of her songs to, to create something bigger and paint on a larger canvas. And that's a problem up and down, um, I think, uh, Behind the Mask. I did write down one uh, lyric. I think it's a veto song. Stand on the Rock. It opens with, My love is like a rock. Nothing rolls it away from you, which I thought was uh, particularly <laughs> that's, that's
1: Sammy Hagar quality Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah exactly.
0: There. <laughs> so uh, there's just not a lot to write home about on Behind the Mask.
1: Oh, man. Charlie, you have any any deep thoughts? Is this actually your secret fillet favorite no. Fleetwood Mac album?
2: No. Well, it, the first thing to say is that the production on this really, really doesn't suit them. Oh no. The production is it's it's a combination of of inept and too polished at the same time. And you you said that because at this point the band has become that five piece the new guitarists are obliged to do an impression of Lindsay Buckingham, but I think the whole band's doing an impression of itself. Mm. Sky's the Limit's okay, it's an okay opener. Love is Dangerous feels like a band that is something going for it. But there's I mean what is that weird third track that sounds like a in the back, in the back, of, back my of my mind. mind it yeah. It sounds like it was in the running for the soundtrack of Terminator 2. <laughs> yeah, it has the weird backwards vocals like the Satanic
1: voices or something like that near the beginning of the song. I, I have to say, I like that song simply because it takes a chance and it goes to a place that, at least, it's not you know just retread.
3: Well,
2: Here is my view of this album. It's not very good. It's also mostly inoffensive. You can put it on in the car while you're driving. But it's not a cool driving album. It's not like Rumours where you want to be driving a 1975 Aston Martin. It's a, I just bought a BMW 5 Series sort of driving album. And it's clearly designed to be that. If you look at the cover, it's, it's painfully... Nineteen ninety and end of career stuff. Um, I I don't sit and hate it. I just don't really recognize it. <laughs> you don't even think about it at all, right? Well, I don't think about it, but I also don't particularly recognize it. It doesn't. I don't know. I, I think it. I think it's oddly telling that that it is the first one that didn't feature the band on the cover. Right. You of, know of the, of the newer ones you
1: maybe you didn't recognize it but the band did recognize it and it included at least a few of its songs you know the few salvageable ones i suppose on uh its next big release which is this uh, something i normally wouldn't mention uh, if not for the fact that uh the chain 25 years the chain a four cd box set that came out in 1992 it's a big retrospective of the band still really good even to this day i like it um but the reason it matters is that it also included four new songs normally when a boxed set includes four new recordings by the artist you just think oh this has got to be the bottom of the barrel slop it's almost always just a nightmare like new tracks recorded by the artist you can confidently say i'll skip those those are always at the end of the box set like all right you know i've heard what i needed to hear Four of these songs are noteworthy. One of them actually I really don't like, and Scott was like, That's a great song. Uh the other two I think are as close to being the best things that Fleetwood Mac recorded after nineteen eighty two as they get. And those are Love Shines, which is a christy McVie song that is just just resplendent. And uh Paper Doll, which is not only a great musical track, but it's just a wonderful place to hear the depths the true unbelievable deaths to which Stevie Nicks' voice was capable of sinking. (laughs) I know I kept yelping about all these songs to you guys. I don't know if you ever got around to listening to them. Did you?
0: Yes, and Paper Doll is really a great song. And I guess, if I read correctly, it was meant to be on the 88 Greatest Hits album. And uh, Mick Fleetwood said, I don't know if I like that so much, and pushed it off. And then when they were looking for stuff for the box set, um, decided to put it back on and used oh, it. And so they, that's where it came So it's a little longer. older, yeah. It's about four or five years old when this box was released. That makes a lot of
1: sense on the timeline, okay.
0: Uh, but it's one in which uh, I think Vito wrote the music and Stevie Nicks wrote the melody and the lyrics. There's blended harmonies on here. It sounds like a pretty good approximation of of older Fleetwood Mac, the style at least of older Fleetwood Mac. Paper Doll's a very good song. love shines and the one song that you said that you don't like but i do is one called heart of stone which is a christine mcphee song that to me to my ears that i mean like it's 1992 it's it's not really going to be a hit but i mean that that's the kind of song that could be it's got this really neat hypnotic riff a very hooky chorus it even has to my ears a a kind of a little lies quality to it in the way they pull it off i think heart of stone is a high quality song too so there's at least a handful here on the chain box set, which are well worth hearing.
1: I guess at that point we can move on to the single most important album of the Fleetwood Mac Cannon, the one that I listened to once, I believe, in 1999 and have never returned to, nay, not even for the preparation of this episode. Yes, I'm talking about time, 1993's pathetic, sad, lamentable time. Hey Scott, I think you did the research on this one just the other day, and you, you were stunned at what you found. Do You want to explain to folks what this album is?
0: Well, hold on one second. I'm going to stop. All right, so <laughs> the behind the mask didn't sell all that well, but I don't think that the band could have anticipated how badly the next record would be received. That's it's called Time, and so by this point, uh, Stephen Nicks is gone, Lindsey Buckingham's long gone, Christine McVie also retires around uh, 1990 or so doesn't want to be on the road anymore, doesn't want to be in the band anymore. And so this is a Fleetwood Mac that is helmed by Dave Mason. Yes, that Dave Mason, who's made an appearance or two on uh, various episodes of Political Beats. Uh, uh, Becca Bramlett, who is, uh, what, the daughter of uh, Delaney and Bonnie? I think that's... Bonnie Bramlett, Bo- yes. Yeah, Bonnie Bramlett. And uh, and then Billy Burnett does come back. So the, uh, the, the worst of the two guitarists from the last album returns Yay! for time. And that's the way they're going to go into battle with those three and Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, except the record label, not too sure about that, uh, that strategy. And <laughs> they essentially, I don't know, you know, contractually or how they, they, they forced it to happen, but they forced convinced Christine McVie to contribute five songs, four or five songs to time. But Christine didn't want to have anything to do with the band anymore. So she recorded her songs separately with her own guitarist and her own, you know, band backing her up, essentially. Uh, guitarist for sure. I guess I'm not sure about the rest of the band. But they were recorded completely apart from the rest of the band. So you have, in essence, this this album in which a handful of songs are Christina Fee songs. And as Fee you songs. can imagine,
1: the result was a miracle. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Miraculously bad. Uh, Time, I don't even think Time made the top 200, the Billboard 200 in the U.S. It didn't make a dent anywhere. Fleetwood
1: uh, Mac, this is the band that made rumors. Yeah. And they couldn't break the top two hundred.
0: And there's not I, I actually I thought I had written something down, but I, I literally I'm looking at my notes and it is a blank page. <laughs> so I guess I didn't write anything down about I mean, why the time would album.
1: I inflicted upon yourself. I told you people to run far away in my notes. Charlie, you weren't stupid enough to listen to this record, were you?
2: I did listen through once.
1: Oh my god, I'm impressed. Okay. Thank you. Did, have any impressions? Did you, you write it, Write down anything entertainingly bad?
2: I assume that the title "Time" is short for "time to stop recording music." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that's about that's about what it deserves. Uh, I have to say, there you know, are very few things that you could say that are good that came from the Clinton administration. I lived through it. I mean, you know, Charlie, he's young. He was wearing diapers during the Clinton administration, I assume. <laughs> um, but uh, I was there um and you know the one of the very few things that came from it that was good was the revival of Fleetwood Mac because apparently they were Bubba's favorite band and they all loved the song Don't Stop it became the inaugural or like you know the campaign Man, it's hard to me. hard to
0: believe the band full of philanderers was uh yeah, Bill was... favorite band
1: well I mean the jokes were being made back then I, I remember yeah. reading them in the weekly standard <laughs> and the spectator and stuff like that but uh this was big for the band and of course the pressure on them to get back together was huge. You know, Lindsay and Stevie wouldn't want anything to do with each other at all. Christine didn't want a tour. She's at home. How you know she's a normal person by the way? She's always the sanest person of any of the members of Fleetwood Mac. She keeps trying to stay retired and get <laughs> off the road. That's how I that's what I like about McVie. That she's like listen, I've made enough money. I just you know, I'm going to sit in my hot tub in Malibu and just enjoy a daiquiri. Um, <clears throat> but They got back together for a live performance that was videotaped and, uh, and of course, recorded as a CD. I think they did a brief tour afterwards. Oh, yeah. The album came out as The Dance, and it was like the album that in 1997, I was like a senior in high school, junior in high school. I could not avoid this record. Every friggin' store aisle seemed to have it, every boomer parent of my friends had it at home. I somehow managed to get away with not listening to it, but it was like watching a cicada bloom happen (laughs) in Washington, (laughs) DC, like one of the 17 year blooms, like suddenly everywhere. It was that album of them doing a recreation of a rumor style portrait. Um, It was ubiquitous. Uh, Now, eh, I don't know. It's not really talked about that much. I think it's just a very entertaining and very competent live album it's good to hear stevie nick sounding so much better uh than she does in the past she, her voice really recovered uh, the one thing i want to point out is that if anything lindsey buckingham has only become a better guitarist over time uh listen to what he does on big love him mm-hmm. playing an mm-hmm. acoustic guitar just an acoustic guitar one man he does things with that guitar that i think violate the laws of physics yeah, that is the most extraordinary performance I mean, near the ending, when he's, like, doubling up on himself, uh, I, I actually have not seen the video. I need to go see the video, and I just hope to God that it just focuses on his fingers. I want to see how that happens. I don't know how that works. Like, I don't know how that should be possible. Uh, but just to hear it is it, – it's, it's majestic. It's majestic. Why there are people who worship at the altar of Lindsay Buckingham as a guitarist, not just as a, an electric guitarist, not just as a rock guitarist, but as a folk guitarist, as an just as an all-around player.
0: The other thing from the dance is you have a, uh, not a proper release necessarily, but a release of Silver Springs as both a song they performed during the concert and as a single from the album. And that's where I first heard it, I had not heard it before the live version, and I remember just loving this live version of Silver Springs and thinking it was perhaps a new song uh, that they had done for the performance and then learning the backstory and like, well, no wonder it's so good. It's it's from the rumor sessions. That makes all the sense in the world. But it's really a fantastic live performance of Silver Springs as well, which is uh, at least uh, introducing that song likely to a, another generation or a first generation of, of people who had not heard it before. you never get
2: I think it's a good record. My problem is that I'm not into live albums. Ah, I'm a creature you and me of the both. studio.
0: You and me both, Charlie.
2: I'm what? a creature of the studio. My favourite band is the Beatles. You you don't want to get too far into listening to Beatles live performances except <laughs> maybe at the beginning. And and my brain cannot stop comparing and contrasting the live and the studio versions. And oddly enough, the live albums that I like the most are mostly faked—the <laughs> ones that end up, the ones that were all done in the studio overdubs. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. You people are philistines, and yet I tolerate you. Well, I, that's 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 why we're friends, I suppose. I happen to love live albums, and <clears throat> I think this is again proof that they were actually good in a much quieter setting, as they were good in that setting, as good as they were in arenas, and they, and again it's worth it if just to hear Lindsey Buckingham as a guitarist. He does I'm So Afraid Again on this record, and the guitar solo is equally as inspired as the one that he whipped out on the Fleetwood Mac Live album. So it's worth hearing from that. But it's not an album full of original material. Uh, that actually was eventually fated to happen with Say You Will, their last album to date, and an album that I have to say, it's 2000, 2003 or five, two thousand. 2003 i um am not impressed with i'm not impressed with it i was the the last one of theirs that i ever listened to i only listened to it very recently in fact first things first it suffers from the curse of all albums it is so long
0: (laughs) 19 songs 19 the 18 songs.
1: songs. The CDs have destroyed like people's self control. There's like nine Buckingham songs and nine Nick songs, and it's it, McVie decided to stay retired. She was smart, and so it makes it obvious to me that they just decided to combine two solo albums. McVie had a solo or Nick's had a solo album, and Buckingham had a solo album. They mashed them all together. You get this nine, this 18, 19 albums, not the song album. It's a monstrosity, and I cannot tolerate its length. But ultimately, the songwriting just doesn't grab me either. And, and uh, am I missing something here? Did I miss a final album, Jim?
0: Not particularly. I, I've no. heard it once or twice. And it does, you know, you don't really know that Mick or John McVie are there, right? It is, I, so, that's the, yeah. it is so much about uh, Nixon and Buckingham and the songs they bring. And they're not terrible songs. And some play kind of like experiments and some kind of sound like grabs for pop success there's some interesting uh, i don't want to say interesting there's some production choices that i don't necessarily love there's a couple of nice i mean there's a song from uh steven x called thrown down which i think is pretty good there's a one called peacekeeper in which they sort of harmonize on the vocals there are moments here or there where it's oh yeah that's that's what fleetwood mac could do at the height of their powers but they're pretty few and far between, and it Peacekeeper's does...
1: Peacekeeper's an old one, too, by the way. That's oh, a Well, there you cut. go.
0: And it does yeah. very much sound like two you know, two artists who had two solo albums and decided to it would be more lucrative to have the Fleetwood Mac banner on top, but I'm sure they were right about that.
2: Yeah. So this never works when, when you go back the slate and try to make an album. But another reason that it doesn't work is that it has songs on it called Peacekeeper and track two, Morrow Turning Over in His Grave. This is 2003, and they get political.
1: I know, it's so bad. It's just like,
2: it's everything that's not Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, so he, he, Buckingham writes a song about how Edward R. Murrow would be really disappointed by the media around the Iraq war. <laughs> and then he has another song, Peacekeeper, which, and I looked this up because I was so astonished to hear Fleetwood Mac doing this, is about U.S. propaganda per Lindsay Buckingham. He says, it's about how we we are becoming increasingly desensitized to things around the world that are brutal and not standing up for human value. And the thing is, that's not what Lindsay Buckingham does. What Lindsay Buckingham does <laughs> is write about his entire lifetime of on-off love affair with Stevie Nicks. <laughs> so you have the two of them making an album, and he's talking about that? Ah, no. It's like it's it's the sir. This is
1: a Wendy's of music, you know. <laughs> like I came here for fast food, I came here for my fries. Why am I? why am I getting this tirade? Yeah, yeah. It, I I I have to say I agree with it. it. It's it's just very very inappropriate in terms of like jarring. It would it wouldn't even bother me
2: if the song itself was good, and it's not. And that's always the thing that catches well, me. Well, I agree. I, I'm not bothered by. It. Uh, political lyrics. If I were, I wouldn't be able to listen to any music. But I think it demonstrates a certain decadence that makes the album useless. Because Lindsey Buckingham would never have put up with that. You know, it's like the old joke about Ronald Reagan and National Review in 1985. That Ronald Reagan would never have put up with this if he was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. And and you you feel the same. About Lindsey Buckingham here. This guy is a Paul McCartney level arranger, and he has extremely high standards, and he knows what works. And just felt felt flabby to me. All the
3: creatures I have to agree,
1: but, you know, I don't think there's anything, there's no shame in that for me, because what you have at the end of this career, and I assume, I assume they're not going to be trying to put out any new albums, they still tour, Neil Finn of Crowded House and uh, The Split Ends is now a member of the touring band of Fleetwood Mac, the is it, it's it's him and, and Scott, Mike, who is Mike the Campbell other
0: person? Mike from the Heartbreakers. Mike Campbell.
1: Yeah, they, they, they took Buckingham's place because he refused, I think, to tour. I don't know if
0: I he wanted to he got del- fired. He, he was fired. He wanted to delay a tour so he could put out a solo album, I think, and Stevie Nicks went nuts, and, and he apparently was smirking at her at some award ceremony. It's a weird story.
1: <laughs> it's, it's still, after all these years, these people are supremely good at getting on each other's nerves. I mean, that's the thing. You'd think time might have mellowed them out, no, time has made Lindsay and Stevie just that much better at finding a way to get under each other's skin. And that just makes it that that is that's quintessential Fleetwood Mac right there. Lindsay Buckingham get fired by the band by smirking, <laughs> by smirking and Stevie Nixon at Stevie Nicks in an awards ceremony. Yeah. And she yeah. said, it's
0: him or me. And they chose. And chose they Stevie. chose
1: her because yeah. I guess, you know, you know, that's the thing. Maybe she sells and he doesn't. The weirdo doesn't sell the same way. As <laughs> she does. But anyways, the music stands up. The music is fantastic. It's some of the greatest music, and one of the most fascinating dramas of a band to be told throughout you know the last quarter century of the 20th century. And uh, it, it's you know the monument is there in the music, but oh gosh, you know every now and then you would you would not you know you know be mistaken to go pick up a book and just read about this band because enough crazy stuff happened for you to never even hear a note of theirs.
0: All right. There is the political beats. Look at the world of Fleetwood Mac, uh, the second half here in part two. And we have the part of the episode in which we tell you the two albums you must own, the five songs you need to hear from Fleetwood Mac in his second era. Our guests from national review online, Charles C. W. Cook. Charlie, give us your two albums and your five songs.
2: My two albums, I presume, are obvious. They are Fleetwood Mac, a.k.a. The White Album, and Rumors. And with one exception, my five songs are taken from those two. I'm going with Landslide, The Chain, Go Your Own Way, Say You Love Me, and their best song from Mirage, Gypsy.
0: Um Well, I very well can't leave off the greatest rock album of all time off this list. So yeah, rumors will be there. And I went back and forth a few times about which other one. I mean, the Fluid Mac album is very good. Mirage is very good. I do think it's tusk, though. Um, I do think it's tusk to hear just the general (laughs) weirdness and oddities of them doing something that is so not rumors. And the songs there, I think, are still, if it doesn't sequence the right way, the songs still are... High quality enough to, to recommend that to you. Uh, five songs. I mean, you could pick uh, any number of them from uh, from this era. Uh, you Make Love and Fun and Secondhand News from Rumors. I think both of those need to be on this list. Silver Springs is the greatest Stevie Nicks song that she brought to the band. So that's here. I think Hold Me is fantastic. I know you guys are both Gypsy fans. Probably both be on your list or probably be on both your lists. So I'll say Hold Me from mirage and i'll kick in a later era one i am endlessly fascinated by the sound of big love so i will add that one here as well jeff over to you
1: all right well pretty easy choice for me rumors why because i'm an obvious person tusk is my second choice because i think it's actually the better of the two albums but you know this is why we have charlie on to embarrass us um As for my five songs, this is so hard because, I mean, every one of these albums is just packed full of splendid songs, at least until the end. So I'm just going to pick one from each of their first five albums. I figure that's a fair way to do it. And from the White Album, I'm going to go with Landslide, which, as I said earlier, isn't just one of Stevie Nicks' finest songs. It's a standard. It's a timeless song. It's a song that everyone will sing and play for decades to come. From Rumors, I'm going to say it's You Make Loving Fun, which is a a perfect track for all the reasons we discussed on the show. From Tusk, God, well, you have 20 songs, and I think basically 19 of them are are worthy. How do you pick one? I don't know, but I'll go with Over and Over, the first song on the album. It's one of Christine's subtly, stealthily, secretly her best songs. Uh, Doesn't ever get onto the greatest hits records or anything like that. But there's a reason that they played it live because they knew that it actually really held up well in performance. Speaking of performance, another one I'm going to go with is "I'm So Afraid" from Fleetwood Mac Live. It's the best guitar solo that Lindsey Buckingham ever gave in concert. Uh, it's just you know a definitive moment, and uh, you know you should really appreciate Buckingham not just as a songwriter and a singer or a studio craftsman. But as a guitar player, his technique is peerless. And then finally, yep, I'm, I'm in the same boat as Charlie and Scott. You predicted it. I'll pick one from from Mirage, and it is indeed Gypsy, which is, what can you say about Gypsy? It's it's Stevie Nicks' finest song. It may be Fleetwood Mac's finest song. Uh, it's one of the most magical and mystical songs the, that any group from that era has ever recorded. It's uh, a moment of of pure fantasy which just shows you how versatile this band was uh that they weren't just blues or rock or pop or post-punk they didn't start taking post-punk and forget how to make beautiful music like this song Mm -hmm.
0: the Political Beats Part 2 of Fleetwood Mac. We thank our guest, senior writer at National Review Online. You can also find him at charlescwcook.com. Sign up for his weekly newsletter. Charles C. W. Cook, thanks so much for joining us again here on Political Beats.
2: Thank you for having me on what will presumably, given my Tusk apostasy, be my last appearance (laughs) on Political
0: Beats. (laughs) Well, we'll see. Uh, I'll fight for you, but you know, there's always Jeff. Uh, Jeff, find him on Twitter at esotericcd, And this is one of uh, Jeff's big whales uh, of, of a band to get done on the program. We've done it.
1: Just hunting them down one by one, one by one. Hey, Fairport Convention fans, please, let's talk.
0: You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Uh, remember our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free, entry-level, mid-level, opera-level, getting you exclusive content and much more. Join us there patreon.com/politicalbeats. And now we reach the part of the episode where we say thank you to some of our patreon supporters. So thank you James Cantwell, Jim Paul Wheeler, Blair F, Colin Rusk, Tim Keith, Don Walheim, Michael Shore, Kurt Fernstrom and Raz Cohen. Thank all of you for supporting us. You can join us there, too. Patreon.com slash Beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen and leave reviews over at Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Join the conversation there. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.